0: Emergency medicine, abstract with Sanjay
1: and Mike.
2: Oh, are you going to start, or am I going to start? What, what's, happening? what's happening?
3: We were both, we were both just <laughs> looking at each other, <laughs> for waiting like, for one of us to for, go. We for actually like
2: thirty seconds. It was like a, it was like a, sh- no. a shootout at the OK Corral. We're just waiting a duel. <laughs> it was actually thirty minutes. The time just
3: flew by, but we both were just sitting here, <laughs> like, <laughs> waiting.
2: Oh, that was actually kind of awkward and weird. We don't and, normally have a lot of awkward moments between the two of us. No. I mean, I know there's a lot of awkward moments from an external person's observer, yeah. but between that's us- right. We don't...
3: Bo- Yeah, a lot of people think we are both <laughs> awkward. Yes. But as a And that's unit, fair and
2: probably true. Within the unit- We think everything moves very smoothly.
3: <laughs> it certainly seems to, <laughs> you know- I don't know if you know this, but this program is completely unedited. <laughs> this is just we go yeah. and it just goes straight to press.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's no production crew, there's <laughs> nobody editing out the times when we're like,
3: in fact, this for those of you listening on the morning of the first, this is a live broadcast. That's, that's how right. smooth the whole thing normally goes. A,
2: that's exactly right. It's sort of a Howard Stern kind of thing. And if there's a, actually a live studio audience. You want to say hi, everyone? <laughs>
3: Yeah, there's a laugh track, like yeah. Seinfeld style. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, we have, well, we have a bass player in the corner to say <laughs> hey to Jerry. How's it going? Yeah,
4: thank you. Thanks for being here, buddy. It's always late.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh,
2: that's
3: good stuff. Good stuff. So, yeah, Mike and I are, you know, in terms of what's going on personally, we're sort of in very different stages right now. Because I am just finishing up a family visit in my home.
2: Yeah, you had uh, the whole clan from but, yeah, Texas. We
3: had six people staying in our home, bringing the yeah. grand total of people to ten. Yeah, in our little house, include eleven if you include Toby, the dog. Right, Toby is not but, a person. And we disclaimer,
2: full disclaimer: Toby and is not a person. Th- they
3: didn't come for a day or two days; they came for a week, so they were here for a while. But actually, you know, I got to say, I was very nervous about it. Turned out to be okay that's great that to be okay.
2: I'm sure everybody can relate, right? The society for better or worse has opened up a lot. There's a lot of people moving around, seeing people for maybe the first time in, you know, 18 months or so. And I think a lot of people, when I do the little casual surveys around are having visitors or going to visit. So yeah, I think you know, everybody can relate to people showing up and, and saying, we're so excited to see and you. Everyone can relate to the fear
3: of like, for those of you who like, you know, maybe you your residents, you're a little bit younger. You just, you don't know quite yet. If I was to say, "Hey, there are six family members coming, your significant other's family, and they are staying a week." Yeah. If your heart doesn't drop to the pit <laughs> of your stomach when yeah. you hear that sentence, you just don't know you yet just, what just, that feeling yeah, is. You and so felt when it. you come, in, and so the thing is, your expectations are so low. You know, you're like, "It's going to be terrible. It's going to be too crowded." Blah blah blah. So it even turns out to be okay. It's a big win. It's a and, huge win. And so this one actually was. It was okay. So it was a huge win. And mm-hmm. you've got. Well, I'm done now. Yeah, I
2: only have three people coming, and they're coming tomorrow. It's my stepmom and my aunt and uncle. And And your stepmom's coming from France. And she's coming from France, and she's staying for two weeks. So that's going to be great. And then my aunt and uncle are only staying for several days, so that's going to be a little bit easier. But, you know, it's just there's a lot of pressure on, you know, as you all know, figuring out fun stuff to do. They're not from Southern California, so what is it they do? And you know, what is it you do? And, you know, how long do you do it? And how much time and do you have to spend? Where does everybody
3: sleep? Yeah. That's, like a, that's like a big well, actually, one, you know? Well,
2: actually, okay. All right. And full disclosure, I've sent my aunt and uncle to my wife's father's so or my father-in-law's house. He lives nearby, really nearby. And he's kind of like a single guy now since my, my mother-in-law died. And so they're going to stay with him and sort of at night. So
3: just to be because you've been talking about this. Yeah.
2: That was the last minute I didn't, minute didn't actually change. realize this.
3: You have one house guest coming.
2: Well, yes. But I have to as people you, I have to entertain all day long, as, and then I can pass them But as them off. you
3: know, it's the nighttime that's the hardest, and it's logarithmic. It's like an earthquake. It's like the Richter scale. <laughs> the, if you have one person coming scale. versus six people coming, <laughs> <laughs> that's like, yeah. it's not six oh, times no, as hard. I, it's I'm 600 not. times <laughs> as hard. I hear you. I think,
2: I think that's a million times as hard if it's a Richter scale. But anyway... <laughs> Could be right. Logarithmic. Sanjay, we've had this joke before, like, you know, like how you were in calculus when you were in like sixth grade or something like that, and yet you're terrible with math. Like, we don't understand this. But
3: I'm amazing with. Calculus. (laughs) Calculus <laughs> with AP. If it was on the test, I knew it. This
2: family scales, <laughs> This wasn't going to be on the test. You just don't know how Indian kids roll. I, I certainly do not. But I'm learning because I've been watching that show that my kid likes. The what's it, the one that John McEnroe narrates? What's it called? Oh, I,
3: never have I ever. Never have I
2: ever. So I'm I'm getting insight. Of course, that's the the you know heartfelt story of a teenage girl. You know, and her travails, as she uh, yeah, she grows up in the valley, in the in the valley, valley in and and so you know, it's exactly like Sanjay's life. Actually,
3: it's it's incredibly <laughs> it's incredibly close. The nerdiness
2: of it all. Speaking of nerdiness, we do have some nerdiness to get to on this particular thing. So, wow, what a what a, what what a, a transition. Segment.
3: We've you been
2: practicing what? that one all week.
3: <laughs> okay, so first we're gonna do the twenty four papers.
2: Yes, we got twenty four papers, and there's I think I would say we're both kind of excited about this yeah, week. There's you know, a lot of good
3: papers. You know, the thing is, because, you know, I know maybe it feels to some of you like we cover a lot of COVID on the program. It's just the number of COVID papers in the journals is just really high. You know, that's like a it's lot like of what there is. 50% of the of but journal articles. it seems like it's starting to taper off. And this month, I think there's only one COVID paper this yeah, month. Maybe. And it's a Miss C one. So mm-hmm. that's a little bit different. And I've got a PCARN study for kids under age three
2: months. Yeah, I've got a targeted... Temperature management for cardiac arrest. One of, one, your, one of your favorite one
3: of my topics. topics, you topics. Know? We've got had one sent to us by a listener about plastic bags saving people's lives. Oh wow, that's going to be interesting.
2: I've got another kid one about brews. So brief, resolved, uh, unexplained events. Is it brew or cool? brewy? And my belief it is brew. I've been saying brewy. Well, it makes sense because it was alti. But in my, you know, and I I actually have been looking around and asking people what they say, and you get both directions, but I think it's brew. And the reason I think it's brew is actually because if the unexplained event becomes explained, it actually becomes a brie. And I'm not making that up. It's B-R-E-E. And it just doesn't make sense for it to go from brewy to brie. It just, just, just doesn't make sense. So I think it's brew and brie. I'm I'll going with it. that. And we're just going to bury the... Old relationship to Alti. and for the new generation, they'll just grow up going, "Hey, it's a brew,"
3: and your dog's name Brew,
2: and my dog's name so Brew, that's another which again is my dog is an incredibly benign golden doodle. So that just sets the stage of Brews are like these happy, fuzzy little things that you know don't have a care in the world.
3: Yeah, but we I, we really are excited about no, the good papers one. this month. So this oh, is- and I'm
2: ending with one that talks about resident grit. And how oh, grit. Oh, yeah.
3: I, when we were selecting, that was a hotly contested who'd get to do this yeah. one because it's so just, you guys got to so wait cool. to the
2: bitter end to hear how grit affects resonant wellness and things like that. For the ultra summary, we have familiar voice
3: Jess Monis joined by special guest Aaron Skolnick. And then the nerdiness.
2: The nerdiness comes on and they're going to talk about study replication. And I actually wanted to solicit feedback from the listenership out there because. You know, triple T A L N time to talk a little nerdy, which is a great one. I'm just starting to, you know, not feel it anymore, and I feel like it should get a new name. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start asking people what they think. And the ones that I just came up with on, on like, as this is coming mm-hmm. up is, so you think you can nerd? Right. Oh, I, I love that <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, and getting nerdy with it. That's pretty good too. You huh? just came up with just it? just now.
3: Yeah, that's very good.
2: So. Those are my two that I'm. You know, I, we're, it's just gonna. This is gonna be a multi-year process to replace triple. Get GAL nerdy with it. Uh, uh, I don't
3: think it. that's gonna be a way to, to get past that
2: one. Oh come on! Are, these are creative people out there. They're gonna have awesome stuff to suggest. Wow. But, I like. I like both of. <laughs> maybe we call both of them. <laughs> we alternate. How about? So you think you could get nerdy with? It. <laughs> <laughs> da 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 da. All I know is. If it ends up being, so you think you can nerd, we're going to have to have a video component so we can yeah. see their, their, their nerd moves. <laughs> I love it. But oh, Study replication. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's Ken and Swami are going to talk about study replication in a very nerdy way.
3: And shall we begin?
1: Action. Paper chase.
3: Abstract number one. Risk of Traumatic Brain Injuries in Infants Younger Than Three Months with Minor Blunt Head Trauma. And this is by Abid et al. from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Nate Cooperman is the second author on this paper. So as any parent of a toddler can attest to, me included, minor head trauma is a very common occurrence in children, and sometimes the mechanism or something else about it is concerning enough to warrant a visit to the emergency department. Now, clinical decision instruments such as the PCARN pediatric head CT rule have a sensitivity of close to 100%, and they work by dividing patients into two different age groups, age less than two years and age between two and 18 years. And these have the potential to reduce unnecessary CT scanning without missing clinically relevant traumatic brain injuries. In multiple large validation studies, PCARN seems to outperform similar rules that were designed for this very purpose, like chalice and catch. But one caveat to using the rule is that there's very limited data for children less than three months old.
2: So, so the he, ones who aren't really even toddlers. That's they're, right.
3: They're they are sitters.
2: Or they're not even sitters. They're, they're not they're even back, sitters. They're back liars. Yeah,
3: that's exactly right. They, they don't even they're just boss. sit. They they're lie. <laughs> they just lie. They are very close. So here, the authors aim to assess the accuracy of the PCARN rule in children less than 3 months old, and this is a secondary analysis of the public-use dataset from the PCARN Prospective Observational Study, which included patients less than 18 years old with head trauma of less than 24 hours in duration before presentation who had a GCS of 14 or 15. The authors here only looked at data from the infant's 3 months of age or less, with the outcomes of interest of number one, clinically important traumatic brain injury, number two, traumatic brain injury on CT, and number three, skull fracture on CT. And as in the original paper, like sort of the original derivation validation of the PCARN stuff, clinically important TBI was defined as death from the TBI. TBI is requiring a neurosurgical procedure, an intubation for at least 24 hours because of the TBI, or hospitalization for two or more nights because of the head trauma, right? And they choose that two or more night things because they felt like some of these kids were observed or something like that overnight or waiting to get a head CT. So two or more nights and ongoing symptoms in association with the TBI on CT. So of the original almost 11,000 kids less than two years old, 10.5%, 1,147, were less than three months old, And full data was available for just over 1,000, almost 1,100 patients, so 94% of the ones that could have had data on them. Just as an FYI, there were no clinically important TBI events in the 65 excluded cases. So of the almost 1,100, 514 met PCARN low-risk criteria and 567 did not. And just as a reminder, these low-risk criteria are GCS less than 15. Other signs of altered mental status. The high-risk criteria. So you have to say no to all these things. Ah, yeah. So GCS lesson 15, other altered mental status, palpable skull fracture, non-frontal scalp hematoma, loss of consciousness for more than or equal to five seconds, not acting normally per the parent, and severe mechanism of injury. So if you say no to all those things, then you're a low-risk little, little, little baby. Among patients who did not meet the PCARN low-risk criteria, the rate of clinically important traumatic brain injury was 4.2%, and traumatic brain injury on CT was 21.3%, and skull fracture was 28%. So those are the ones who did not meet the criteria for being low-risk. Among patients who did meet PCARN low-risk criteria, the rate of clinically important traumatic brain injury was 0.2%, one patient, but traumatic brain injury on CT was actually 5.1% and skull fracture was 4.6%. Now, they give a lot of details in this paper about the 10 patients that were sort of PCAR negative and still had bleeds. And largely, they were less than two months old, had a mechanism of injury of a fall of less than three feet, and about half of them had no signs or symptoms of trauma at all. So they didn't have abrasions, they didn't have lacerations, they have a little hematoma, nothing. They look totally fine. Now, some limitations with this trial are that we don't know how many CTs were obtained, not because of suspicion for TBI, but for something else, like maybe like for a non-accidental trauma workup or something like that. And CTs were not obtained for all patients in the study, right? This wasn't like a regimen trial like that. And both of these could impact the prevalence of TBI in very unpredictable ways. So although PCARN did accurately identify infants at low risk of clinically important TBI in their cohort, there was still a relatively high number of bleeds among infants who were PCAR negative. And the authors talk about this a lot in the discussion and say, like, these kids are just really hard. You know, they're just very difficult to examine, with the biggest caveat being, are they acting normally? Because like Mike said before, they don't know how they
2: act. They don't do very much, right? And I think there really is a big difference between even a six-week-old and a 10-week-old, even as a parent, your assessment of, well, are they doing stuff that's normal? Yeah. Are like, they sleepier than yeah. normal? Are they eating yeah. less? Than, it's right. very difficult. Are they spitting up more, vomiting more? All of that stuff, you know? That's, that's
3: right. So I think the authors really wanted to say, we're good. Apply this to everybody less than three months old. But their discussion ends up being like hedged with a little bit of caution. I would think saying, so. Saying, you know, so for, I mean, there's anatomic reasons why this is true, right? They have a thinner skull. There's like some other stuff. So one thing I really want to drive home, though, is, it is. It's stated clearly in the rule, but I think we forget it. It's the parent who has to assess them acting normally because mm-hmm. it's really hard. Oh. But they have the best shot, right? This you can't say like oh, the kid looks pretty normal per me, or if you know grandma comes right. in He's or something. Is within a
2: normal range? Yeah. which a normal range for grandma's a like. Might I, you know, be. I
3: think they look pretty normal to me. It really does have to be the parent because if anybody has a shot of doing this correctly, it's them. But they're still saying, take a little bit of caution with kids less than three months old. And I think generally, I agree. Editors commentary. In this retrospective database study of infants less than three months old with head trauma, one out of 541 patients at low risk by PCARN had a clinically important TBI, but nine more had bleeds despite being PCARN negative. Due to a combination of anatomical differences like a thin skull and difficulty in assessing mental status due to limited interactivity of the child, this should be considered a high-risk cohort and we should take more caution in our approach to CT than we do with older infants, kids, and toddlers.
2: Abstract number two, hypothermia versus normothermia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is by Dan et al., and it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, so targeted temperature management, or also colloquially known as therapeutic hypothermia, continues to find itself nestled in society guidelines for the treatment of comatose people following resuscitation for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is really despite very poor evidence. The initial two trials of this modality from back around like 2002 were really, really bad and very high risk for bias. And further, these trials did not attempt to maintain body temperature in the normal range, so they randomized people to hypothermia versus whatever. And we know that letting people get fevers in the post-arrest period is actually quite detrimental. These studies are countered by the only really large trial on the topic that found no benefit of therapeutic hypothermia. But, and this is a big caveat, in that trial, an unplanned subgroup analysis was performed And there was a trend towards improvement for hypothermia among patients who had non-shockable rhythms. And so that led to some concern that maybe targeted temperature management or or hypothermia would work in that group. A more recent small trial of patients with initial non-shockable rhythm also showed a slight benefit to hypothermia compared with normal temperature. And we covered that paper maybe, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. And we noted the findings were really quite marginal. And if a single case had been reclassified from a good neurologic outcome in the hypothermia group to a poor neurologic outcome, the results fell apart. So basically, statistically, very tenuous results. Yeah, and I know you, I think at some
3: point in time over paper, Jason email, I think you've gone through all these papers. I, I know this is something that, you know, yeah. you're particularly interested in. So it seems like the first couple of papers from Australia, if I remember correctly. There's one from Australia, yeah. Yeah, they were kind of positive. A but bunch they of were guidelines terrible. changed though, yeah. based on those. And people now got excited. And now we've had a few papers after the fact going, pump the brakes yeah. here, but it's kind of a little There's bit Still late. some
2: ambiguity, yeah. So the authors here decided to spend several years of their lives conducting an even bigger study to try to end this debate, at least for now. This was a massive and highly anticipated international investigator-initiated study. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to targeted hypothermia of 33 degrees Celsius or normothermia, basically maintaining a temperature less than 37.5 for 40 hours. Eligibility was out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of presumed cardiac etiology, so you couldn't be like, my head got chopped off or something like that, so that's consistent across all the trials, irrespective of the initial rhythm, whether it was shockable or not they had to be comatose and have sustained ROSC of at least 20 minutes before initiating the temperature control measures. The key outcomes were death at six months and survival with poor neurologic outcome at six months, defined as a modified rank and scale of four to six, so really bad. Adverse events were also collected. Outcomes were assessed by a blind assessor at six months, but otherwise the trial was unblinded. It's very difficult to blind whether you're, you know, Got all these cooling measures on and all that kind of stuff. Several subgroup analyses were planned, including, very importantly, initial shockable rhythm versus not initial shockable rhythm. 1,861 patients were enrolled. 1,861. To put in perspective those initial studies, the two initial studies out of Australia back in 2002 combined had less than 300 people. The huge trial that showed no benefit from like 2015 or so had 900 people. And then the other trial had about 250. So this is like more than all the other trials combined, almost double all the other trials combined. So it's a really, really, really big trial. Mean age was 64, 80% men, 91% had witnessed cardiac arrest, greater than 80% had bystander CPR, and about three quarters had an initial shockable rhythm. So most of these were really good prognostic indicators. Results. Ready? Okay, it's very nuanced. Hypothermia did not work. Period. Full stop. End of story. Drop the mic? That's a drop the mic. I mean, like at all.
3: Subgroups, the whole nine yards.
2: Nothing worked. So I'll go through a couple things, but hypothermia did not work. So 50% of the hypothermia group was alive at six months. 48% of the normal thermia group, of course, non-statistically significant in terms of the functional outcomes. 55% of the hypothermia group had a poor neuro outcome compared with, get it, 55% of the normothermia group, exactly the same. Results across the subgroups of patients with initial shockable rhythm, early ROSC, late ROSC, post-ROSC shock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing, 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 nothing. A big fat negative. They show the survival curves. They lie exactly on top of each other, just like, you know, there's like a red curve and a blue curve and red and blue make a purple, and that's what this did. It made it purple. They're right on top of each other. And just for good measure, and this I appreciate this, the authors demonstrate that they actually did do hypothermia, right? Like one way to get same, same differences is to just not do it, right? And we say we randomized them to it, but they never did it. But when they look at the curves of the temperatures of the patients, they diverge immediately and vastly for the 40 hours. So they adhered to the protocol. It just made no difference. Overall, For me, this is really strong design, by far the largest on the topic, at relatively low risk for bias, much lower than the previous studies, and it's clear that the evidence refutes the notion that hypothermia is good for post-ROSC patients, and the practice should be dropped unless, and until, new, higher-quality evidence emerges.
1: Editor's Commentary
2: This extraordinarily large and well conducted study plainly shows that therapeutic hypothermia is not beneficial for resuscitated comatose patients with out of hospital cardiac arrest of presumed cardiac origin, regardless of initial rhythm. Providers should still keep patients within the normothermic range and treat hyperthermia, but cooling measures are generally not necessary.
3: Clinical
1: practice.
3: Abstract number three engagement of the median glossoepiglottic fold and laryngeal view during emergency department intubation. This is by Driver et al. from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. A lot of annals papers this month, which, you know, tends to make for a pretty good month, usually.
2: They tend to be on point.
3: They certainly are relevant. So when performing an intubation, there are lots of different technical aspects that you can sort of practice and modify a little bit to increase your view, you know, like change the position of the patient and do some you know sniffing position and the way you kind of hold the blade and all these different things but one I had never heard of before and Mike said when we were doing the paper selection said he'd never heard of it either <laughs> was when using a mac blade to aim the tip of it at something called the midline molecular fold
2: don't say I didn't know what that is I know I knew exactly what that was I just needed a little refresher course yeah, on neither it I don't
3: want knew what <laughs> it was. And as it says in the title, neither one of us knew it was engaged, the engagement. at the main. I don't know who
2: it's engaged with. I learned it was engaged with a Mac Blade. It was like, wow. This is, it's, it's a love connection.
3: I'm, I'm happy for it. <laughs> I, re- I really am happy for it. I was
2: thinking it. about it and I'm like, you know, is it ever going to find anyone? It did. Congratulations.
3: So- The midline molecular fold is a mucosal fold in the vollecula that connects the tongue to the epiglottis. And they have pictures of it in the paper, and I've looked up some pictures online. Basically, it kind of looks like the frenulum under your tongue, but it's sitting on top of the epiglottis. Now, the reason why you probably have never heard of it, if you're like Mike and I, is because the authors say in the introduction- You went to a bad residency program. No, when you're doing (laughs) DL, you actually can't see it. Because the blade obscures it, right? Like when you're going in to do this. because yeah, it's, very it's curved to see.
2: upward. So by the time you get into there, you've already moved you've it already, out of the way.
3: You've already kind of gone a Got little it. inferior to it. But you can see it when you're using VL, right? Because you see it as you're going in. I, th- I think that's kind of the point. And anecdotally, it has been reported to lift the epiglottis more straight up, I guess, when you put the blade right on it.
2: As opposed to going on one of the
3: sides. Correct. Of it. So, the authors of this paper from Hennepin County Medical Center performed a retrospective study of laryngoscopy videos from a CMAC where the unit of analysis was defined as the instances in the video where the blade was positioned in the vallecula with respect to this midline molecular fold. The abstractors who were looking at the video were blinded to the study hypothesis and recorded both the position of the blade tip with each attempt and the best modified Cormac-Lahane grade and percentage of glottic opening that they saw with each attempt. They also recorded whether both sides of the epiglottis were lifted symmetrically, right? So not kind of tilted off to one side, like tilted off to the right or left. After excluding a few of the videos because they could not determine if the fold was engaged, only 13 of them, or because the blade was never in the vollecula, they went south of the vollecula, so incorrect positioning, and at another 30, they had 164 patient videos available for review with a total of 183 intubation attempts. You know, these providers weren't trying to engage it or not engage it, so just the practice is already that the fold was engaged in 113 episodes and not engaged in 70. A modified cormac lehane grade of 1 or 2A was obtained in 96% of instances in which the midline molecular fold was engaged, compared to 87% of instances when it was not. There was no difference in the percent of glottic opening that was visible regardless of the condition. The epiglottis was lifted symmetrically 81% of the time when the fold was engaged, in contrast to 19% of the time when it was not. So they have some reasonable data here showing that the view was improved when the midline molecular fold was engaged, but they provide no data on its clinical impact. Including no
2: first-pass success or no. Past success rate, nothing. No
3: first-pass success, no overall success, no complication rate, no time. What's going on, guys? How come? Nothing like that. So they, they don't provide that. And further, they state several times. I think this is just sort of how are we are going to take this to our clinical practice, if at all, that it's basically impossible to see the fold during DL, okay? And we also don't know in that case then if the intubators in the sample were looking at the screen, Hmm. right, where they would be able to see it, or if they were doing direct line of sight, which is how you're supposed to be using that CMAC and then look at the screen for confirmation, which they would have missed being able to see it, right? So we don't actually even know if... I don't think there was any intent to engage it or not engage it, but there's just no way to assess that here. I think we would need a trial to see if engaging the fold actually results in better outcomes. But I don't know if we'll ever get one. And at this point, it seems to me like there's not much harm in learning about it, at Mm -hmm. least seeing it and having it somewhere in your difficult airway toolbox. Because I had never heard of it before. And I guess if I was teaching an airway to a junior resident or if I was looking myself and having some difficulty, I might even be able to use it to center myself. I'm doing a Mm -hmm. VL, go in and sort of look for it. And be like, oh, there it is, and feel hmm. a little bit more confident and kind of trying to engage it and pull up. And, right. And if you
2: have the choice to make a little angle correction to engage it, right? I, I mean, think like, that's right. For I mean, me, if it, you have no choice, it's like, this is the, all I'm going to get is a right molecular insertion, whatever. But I if think you're that's like,
3: yeah. right. I, I think for me, it's like, I just haven't come across many things where they're like, hey, to do VL a little better, here's a trick. And this is the first one I've seen. So next time you do a VL, just take a look, see if you see it, and then maybe you can use it on a future difficult airway.
1: And it is commentary:
3: In this retrospective study, the authors report that engaging the midline molecular fold with a CMAC tip was associated with better and more symmetric glottic views and hypothesized that these views might translate to improved intubation outcomes. I had never heard of this before and I'm always looking for ways to improve my intubation game, particularly for VL. I think I will look for it next time I use VL and will keep an eye out for more data in the literature. Although I don't expect it will have a greater impact than the more tried and true practices like proper positioning, maybe this will help when you fall a little bit deeper down your difficult airway algorithm.
2: Abstract number four, effective rapid respiratory virus testing on antibiotic prescribing among children presenting to the emergency department with acute respiratory illness, a randomized clinical trial by Rayo et al. and JAMA Network Open. So, this is about PCR tests for respiratory pathogens that one can get with rapid turnaround in the ED, which I think a lot of us have now, especially in the era of COVID. There's a lot of rapid respiratory panel turnaround kits. The authors start by noting that for children, it's always a virus. And despite this, we still give antibiotics, they say, about 50% of the time, which seems a little bit high, but they cite some studies that say that. The idea in pediatrics is that these respiratory panels can tell you within you know 30 to 45 minutes whether the child has or does not have influenza or some other common URI virus or even some of the atypical bacterial pathogens. And as a result, we should be able to say, oh, look, you have parainfluenza virus and not give antibiotics. That's the general idea. This has been sort of observed in observational studies to be the case, that people who get these panels tend to get a little bit less antibiotics, but it's never been assessed in a randomized controlled trial. So these authors do this. They do a single-site randomized controlled trial on the topic using a pretty interesting strategy, actually. So they get children who have influenza-like illness, which is you know defined as a fever plus some respiratory symptom, These children were identified by research staff before they were seen by a physician and had the biofire respiratory panel collected then. So before they're even seen, they get this thing, this swab done, and this thing picks up influenza, RSV, adenoviruses, non-COVID coronaviruses, and then also chlamydia, pneumonia, mycoplasma, then also para-influenza, a bunch of other stuff. And it's worth mentioning, I guess, that this study was conducted in 2018 and 2019, so before COVID was present on Earth. So just you know, think about you know, your run-of-the-mill URI kit. The results of the BioFire panel were then given to the patient and the provider in the intervention group, but they were not disclosed in the control group. The primary outcome was antibiotic prescribing with secondary outcomes, including the prescription of antivirals, additional ED visits, or hospitalizations across the groups. They enrolled 900 kids with a mean age of 24 months. The study gets a little messy because in the intervention group, only about two-thirds of the people actually had their results given to the doctor. The other third were discharged before the results even came back. And then there was some contamination in the control group where about 10% of them had the results disclosed to the doctor and so, what that net effect is, is it kind of attenuates the effect of the intervention.
3: Now, if the somebody was in the control group and the doc or the treating provider wanted to get a respiratory panel on the kid, could they as well?
2: I think they could, but that's year. But that's not really discussed in the mm-hmm. paper, and that might be where the contamination comes from. But I can't really tell. I couldn't tell, and I tried to look for that point. So they, it's an the, excellent point.
3: The two groups might be more similar than we would like. Actually.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So you know, if there's the same same finding then it might be because, you know again, the results get a little attenuated. But it was still two-thirds got disclosed versus 10% got disclosed. So there's still a good number of kids. There's a good difference between the two groups. Interestingly, most of the time, the panel was positive for something. 85% of the time, it was positive. Therefore, 15% of the time, it was negative. So what about the effects on prescribing? And this is where I think, at least for me, it was a little counterintuitive, but the intervention group had more antibiotic prescribing than the control group, 25% versus 19%, and that was statistically significant. And this was true despite the fact that the bacterial pathogens that come out on that respiratory panel were essentially never there. Like a small handful of kids had mycoplasma pneumonia or something like that, the group. Antiviral prescribing was slightly increased in the intervention group, but in a non-significant manner, 7% versus 5%. And that's probably because almost none of the kids actually had influenza. It was all para influenza, adenovirus, et cetera. All the other measures were the same. The need for follow-up visits, hospitalizations, et cetera, et cetera. But these findings could be tempered a little bit by there was a relatively high loss to follow-up rate. So how do you explain all this? Well, I actually think it's pretty easy to explain. So I think what this paper shows is that we're pretty good at prescribing nothing for URIs, Right. In the control group, we only gave it to 19% of the kids, not 50% like they suggested earlier. And while we could argue that you know that should be 2% or 5% or whatever, and you know that's okay, we can make improvements on that, it's not terrible like we thought. When this panel is performed, we end up with a bunch of viruses, which we already knew or suspected a priority, but also with a bunch of negative results, 15% of them where it's not detected. And I think clinicians then maybe get concerned and they're like, well, if it's none of the viruses, maybe it is a bacteria, maybe it is strep pneumo, maybe it is something else. I think that that might be what's pushing the prescribing up hmm. in the intervention group.
3: They didn't say that, they didn't no. give that, right? Like no. of the ones who were negative, negative on the panel, no, they didn't what percent it. got antibiotics? It was if that was like treat. 100%, right.
2: then... Yeah, it's intent to treat and that's a good you know follow-up study that ought to be done. The way I think to improve this is to only use the pathogen panel when one is seriously considering or even planning on giving antibiotics to begin with, rather than on all comers before the doctors assess them and all that kind of stuff, because that's what they did here, right? They did before right. the doctor. It wasn't the, I'm on the fence case. And so it has some weird effects and that, that don't reflect normal clinical practice. Which is, anyway. which is
3: good advice when we get back to a non-COVID
2: world. Right, exactly. So That's a good point.
3: You know, and now it's every kid is getting a respiratory panel, or God, so. who
2: knows what we're we're changing on a weekly basis. What we're doing, but you're absolutely right about that. Anyway, despite the shortcomings of the paper in the terms of the methodology used or the way the methodology kind of altered the reality of this, I applaud the authors for advancing the science on this topic. And I think you know it's a good RCT. I think you know it needs to be repeated. Studying that cohort of patients, we're ambivalent on, but. I think this was a good effort.
1: Editor's commentary.
2: Respiratory pathogen panels may have an important role to play in antibiotic stewardship, but this study shows that when they are used indiscriminately for children with influenza-like illness, they may actually, paradoxically, increase prescribing. These panels should probably only be ordered when the clinician is truly confused about whether the child has a bacterial source of their apparent infection and was leaning towards prescribing antibiotics.
3: Abstract number five, prevalence of incidentally detected signs of intracranial hypertension on MRI and their association with papilledema. This is by Chin et al. from JAMA Neurology. So as our access to imaging gets easier, right, and the number of tests we perform goes up, The number of incidental findings that we find is sure to follow, right? This is the old, don't go fishing unless you want to catch a fish. And when you do an MRI, you might catch a lot of fish. (laughs) You might
4: catch an alligator.
3: (laughs) So in this case, the authors are looking at the incidence of findings consistent with intracranial hypertension on MRI in a consecutive sample of adult patients getting outpatient brain MRIs for any indication at the Emory Health Center who provided consent to also receive a couple of things. Like so when they're waiting for their MRI, then it also provide consent for a fundoscopic exam where they did photos, photos of the fundus with a camera with pupillary dilatation, symptom review, asking them questions about if they're having a headache, et cetera, and a medical record review. So they could dive into the charts and kind of see what's going on with these people. So over six months, 296 patients were included in their analysis. 65% were female. The median age was just under 50 years. 66% were overweight or obese, and 41% had headaches or history of headaches at the time of the MRI. So remember, these were just, you know, anybody going in to get an MRI. Some were for, you know, there was a malignant... cancer. Staging cancer. Some were for headache, unexplained headache. And just under 50%, exactly 49%, had at least one MRI sign of intracranial hypertension. And five of the patients, or 1.7%, had four signs of intracranial hypertension on the MRI, okay? So that's like, you know, and this is not something we talk about a lot, kind of the number of signs and how that translates to some clinical outcomes. It probably because we don't know a lot about it, which is one of the interesting things. This is a pretty rangy paper, but that's one of the interesting things in there. So a lot of people had evidence of intracranial hypertension. A few had evidence of kind of more concerning, or maybe there's some clinically relevant here intracranial hypertension. What percent had papilledema? 1.7%. So very low. Not very many. Of the whole sample. Now, the prevalence of papilledema did go up as the number of signs of intracranial hypertension went up. So 2.8% of the patients with greater than or equal to one sign of intracranial hypertension MRI had papilledema versus 40% of the patients with greater than four signs.
2: But still less than
3: half. Still less than half. But even in the patients with the most signs on MRI, exactly what we said, 60% didn't have it. Of the five patients that did have papilledema, almost all of them had some pathology that warranted treatment. This paper is of great interest to neurologists because traditionally, finding some sign of intracranial hypertension on an MRI means that the patient should get kind of an aggressive workup, including a lumbar puncture. The authors here are kind of suggesting that intracranial hypertension may be more common than we previously thought, at least as diagnosed by an MRI with like one of these soft signs. And that papilledema is actually very, very rare. So perhaps the correct thing to do should be if you see one of these soft signs of intracranial hypertension is to refer the patient for an ophthalmologic exam, right? They don't have to run down to the ER and do it but they should get some relatively urgent opto exam instead of considering doing an LP for all these people. The confusing part is that they don't provide subgroup data on patients who are getting an MRI specifically because of a clinical suspicion of intracranial hypertension or increased pressure, right? If these patients had some, even one sign of intracranial hypertension and MRI Maybe they should all get an LP, regardless of fundoscopic findings, and I think that's important for us in the ED, and they just don't provide any data on it here. We all know that assessing for papilledema is very difficult in our jobs. Dare I say, absolutely impossible and totally unreliable. The authors here suggest that it has value in triaging patients. I think it's worth knowing you know, about this paper that more signs of intracranial hypertension on MRI equate to more pathology. So maybe these are really the ones that we should try to do a fundoscopic exam, try to do an ultrasound to look for like the disc cup ratio to send them urgently to an ophthalmologist. So there's kind of a lot of things going on in this paper, but I thought sort of this understanding that the number of signs has some value and maybe all these people don't need to rush to a neurologist to get an LP and some other things.
1: Editor's commentary:
3: In this consecutive sample of patients getting brain MRI, at least one sign of intracranial hypertension was seen in about half of the cases, but papilledema was very rare, at 1.7 percent on fundus photography. My take-home here is that if there's only one sign of intracranial hypertension and that's not what you were looking for when you ordered the MRI, you probably don't need to waste much time doing a fundoscopic exam in the ED. Is a positive will be very rare, so referral is probably appropriate. If there are more than four signs of intracranial hypertension on an MRI, or you were looking specifically for intracranial hypertension and found something, then get ophthalmology or neurology involved for further testing or fundoscopic exam in real time.
2: Abstract number six: Electrocardiographic diagnosis of acute coronary occlusion MI in V-paced rhythm using the modified Scarbosa criteria by Dodd et al. in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So the authors here note that you can't tell if a patient has had an MI in the past when they are paced or have a left bundle branch block because Q-waves are obscured under these electrical circumstances. Okay, that seems pretty obvious. Q-waves are weird, you can't tell. However, since occlusive acute MI has nothing to do with Q waves but rather how the myocardium is repolarizing the ST segments we should still be able to see acute MI on the EKG and that this whole thing about how pacing and left bundle branches make it impossible to tell if you have an MI is really a misappropriation misextension of this other finding that you can't tell if they had an old MI on ECG Does that all makes sense that's what their argument is SCARBOSA criteria and the newly minted modified SCARBOSA criteria are now increasingly recognized as aiding the determination of AMI in the setting of left bundle branch block, but perhaps not so much for V-paced hearts. The authors here aim to determine the sensitivity and specificity of these criteria for occlusive MI in the setting of ventricular pacing. And without being mean to the authors, frankly, I think they anticipated this coming. The authors have the most arrogant acronym that I have ever read. That's right. Sanjay's eyes peeked up. The most arrogant one ever. This study is called the PACE electrocardiogram requiring fast emergent coronary therapy study. Perfect study. Ah, it's the perfect study. (laughs) And this defies... The age-old adage that there is no perfect study.
3: Jerry Hoffman right now is, is furious.
2: <laughs> yeah, because now by definition, there is a perfect study, and it's this one.
3: Well, I don't even know why we'll do the rest of the taping. <laughs> I don't know how any other paper after this one can
2: compare. I know. At any rate, I got to say,
3: I'm, kudos. I'm, I'm kind of
2: impressed. I'm, don't act like you're not impressed. At any rate, it's actually a retrospective observational study from 16 sites over 10 years from 2008 to 2018 of a consecutive patients who were V-paced, had ACS symptoms, and underwent coronary angiography. They identified 150 people who met these criteria. 59 of them had an occlusive MI. And we're calling it occlusive MI. You can think of STEMI, but obviously they're not STEMIs because they were V-paced. They have different electrical stuff. 90 of them had non-occlusive MIs. They also then selected a random sample of people who presented with ACS and were V-paced, but adjudicated not to have an occlusive MI, and these patients did not undergo angiography. No one thought they had an MI, so they didn't get a cath. They applied the Scarbosa criteria and the modified Scarbosa criteria to these patients to determine those respective sensitivities and specificities, and the key results are that the sensitivity of the modified Scarbosa criteria for the most important diagnosis, this occlusive MI, was 81%, which is not bad, particularly since the traditional Scarbosa criteria was 56%. The specificity of the modified Scarbosa criteria was a little more complicated to understand in this article, actually, just because of the way it's presented, but I'm doing my own math here, and it was roughly 90%. For modified scarbosa and just slightly higher for the original scarbosa criteria, 93%. Together, these findings suggest that if you see the scarbosa criteria or the modified scarbosa criteria in a V-paced patient who is having ACS symptoms, one, it's pretty specific for occlusive MI. And two, the modified scarbosa criteria are at least medium sensitive at 81%. There are a lot of issues with this paper, and in particular in the methodologic. The selection of controls gives me some pause. I don't really want to go into all the details of it, but it's a little problematic how they selected their controls, but I'll take it for what it's worth. I would suggest, despite the problems with methodology and the retrospective nature of it, I would suggest that this is enough for us to start to think about this a little bit more commonly in patients with V-pacing and become a little more familiar With the modified and Scarbosa criteria, with maybe a little bit of an emphasis on the modified criteria. And for the record, the basics of these criteria are concordant ST elevation anywhere, that's one criteria, okay? Because normally in a paste, you should have discordant ST segments, not concordant ST segments. Concordant ST depression of greater than one millimeter and leads one to three, that's their traditional Scarbosa criteria or basically anywhere in the modified Scarbosa criteria, so that goes from V1 through V6, and large discordant ST elevation of greater than five millimeters. And that's the Scarbosa criteria. The modified Scarbosa criteria actually changed that a little bit, and they say that the ST elevation, if it's more than 25% of the depth of the depression, then that's elevated, and it's using the principle of proportionality. So that means if it goes down 12 millimeters, then if it goes up by more than three, then you've got it. So that's the idea. So be familiar with it. It looks to be relatively sensitive, very specific. Get used to looking that for V V-paste patients, and I think we'll be in good shape.
1: Edit commentary.
2: This is a relatively large study of a relatively difficult to study patient population. Patients with ACS symptoms presenting with V-paced rhythm. The study finds that the Scarbosa criteria are specific for occlusive MI but fairly insensitive, at 56%. The modified Scarbosa criteria increase the sensitivity dramatically to 81% without much decrease in specificity. Though the methodology and number of cases is still small, so we cannot fully claim this is definitive, it's almost certainly worth being familiar with these criteria when assessing V-paced patients with ACS symptoms to help identify those who might benefit from early or emergent cath. Abstract number seven. A randomized
3: controlled trial of ibuprofen versus Ketorolac versus Diclofenac for acute non-radicular low back pain, despite Irizarry et al., from the, oh, not the, just academic emergency medicine.
2: Yeah, don't you go getting us all, Chris Carpenter, all angry with you now.
3: So, low back pain is a difficult to treat condition, and although NSAIDs are generally recommended as first line therapy, there are several studies out there and one really well done meta analysis suggesting that the pain relief provided by NSAIDs may not, as a whole, reach a clinically meaningful level for our patient. But there's little evidence testing NSAIDs against each other, and basically none in the ED to evaluate if one should be prescribed over the others due to increased efficacy. The authors here conducted a randomized, three-arm, double-blind, comparative effectiveness study in the emergency department among patients with low back pain, where they randomized them to receive either 15 tabs of 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, or 15 tabs of 10 milligrams of ketorolac, or 15 tabs of 50 milligrams of diclofenac. All of them were to be taken orally every eight hours as needed by the patient. They excluded patients if the pain was ridiculous, if it had lasted more than two weeks, or if there was a history of trauma. So they're really looking at acute, uncomplicated low back pain. Subjects had to have some functional impairment of their low back pain determined by a score of greater than five on their baseline Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire, which is what they use for their outcome as well. They say in the, I think it was in the methods, that they had to stop their enrollment early due to COVID. Basically, you know, as Mike and I can attest to it, researchers, now we're starting to see this in more published papers. They just shut all research down, like for during the COVID pandemic, you know, at least during the heat of it, which was a reasonable thing to do. So instead of waiting to resume, they just said, we'll publish what we've got right now, which I think is pretty reasonable. And they ended up providing data on just over like about 190 patients, so 66 subjects in each arm. Their primary outcome was improvement in this RMDQ score at day 5, and these improvements were 11 for the ibuprofen group, 14 for the Ketorolac group, and 11 for the Diclofenac group, and these differences were not statistically significant. There were multiple secondary outcomes they looked at in this paper. Some of the more interesting ones were the RMDQ improvement at day 2 which was 5.6 for the ibuprofen group, 9.9 for the Ketorolac, and 9 for the Diclofenac. In response to the question, did this medication irritate your stomach, which is one of the things they asked, the answer was no for 74% of the ibuprofen group versus 95% of the Ketorolac group versus 91% of the Diclofenac group. And both of these were statistically significant differences, even in their small numbers. They asked a series of very nuanced questions of these patients. And Mike and I always like often say with these, you know, pain management trials, like they should get a little bit more in the weeds to really figure out which ones working faster. They did ask a lot of them in this paper, like rates of moderate or severe pain and the frequency of pain at days two and five. And all of these things favored Ketorolac, but in a non-significant way. So although it was correctly reported as a negative trial, it is possible that Ketorolac did outperform the other NSAIDs, but this study was simply underpowered to detect the difference if it did exist. Now, before you hear this, and I'll jump on like a Katorlac bandwagon. Yeah, look at
2: you, Mr. Taking Money from... Katoralak Inc.
3: Oh yeah, you don't you don't like my Katorolak
2: t-shirt. <laughs> I was wondering about that Katorlak sign you have across your hood of your car now. Uh, yeah. This car looks like a, it's, it's a, a new Ricky car. Bobby a Ricky Bobby NASCAR has got Cotor-lac all over it. Yeah, you didn't
3: notice that when you call me now, my phone says this phone is brought to you by Katorlac. The Katoralak majority <laughs> share owner yeah. will be with you shortly. Before you all are like me and sell out to the Katorlac machine. We need to acknowledge some of the major limitations of this trial, including that they did not record, they did a lot of cool things, but they did not record baseline or follow-up pain scores. Also, they don't report on other medications used, right? If these patients were taking a bunch of Tylenol, they got some Norco or something else, and they just don't say. It was a pretty high loss to follow-up rate, and they make no mention of sort of the renal complications, like interstitial nephritis and things like that, that we think is supposed to occur more commonly with ketorolac than some of these other NSAIDs, so there are some limitations here, but this is still the first trial that I'm aware of done in the ED comparing these things for low back pain, and maybe there's a signal that ketorolac's a little bit better.
2: Maybe, maybe not. It's hypothesis generating, friend. Still, I don't care. I'm not on a buy yet for ketorolac stock.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. You know, but I think for me, the message is, you know, and they aren't saying all ED providers should switch to Cotorlac as a first line. I think for me, this is more, if I was to find the right patient, you know, who'd been taking NSAIDs, like at home, I'm taking ibuprofen, it's just not working. I might try ketorolac for that person. So I think there is some value in understanding this data.
1: Editor's Commentary.
3: In this randomized controlled trial of three different oral NSAIDs for emergency department patients with low back pain, the authors report no difference in the primary outcome in change of disability between groups, but most of the outcomes actually favor Cotorolac and the study may have been underpowered to see superiority if it actually existed. I am not going to replace ibuprofen as my first line therapy because this study has flaws. And there is no look at differences in important side effects like renal toxicity, but might consider using Cotorlac for the right patient who I feel might benefit from NSAIDs, but is simply not responding to ibuprofen before moving on to a narcotic.
2: Abstract number eight, healthy life year costs of treatment speed from arrival to endovascular thrombectomy in patients with ischemic stroke. A meta analysis of individual patient data from seven randomized clinical trials. This is by Al McAlfee et al. in JAMA Neurology. And so we've spent a lot of time over the past couple of years talking about how EVT or endovascular therapy works, and we're pretty confident it works for people with large vessel occlusive stroke with suitable ischemic tissue, almost regardless of last known well time. I think the motivation of this article is that that general message that EVT works regardless of last known well time could be extended and misinterpreted to mean that time to EVT doesn't matter. Just, you know, okay, you know, whatever, just get to it when you get to it. It takes a couple hours to organize, so be it. So the authors here sought to show that even though EVT is better than no EVT across a wide set of time intervals, that earlier EVT is better. A principle that probably none of us would seriously argue with but has never been studied rigorously. They obtained detailed case report files from the Hermes Collaborative. That's a group that shares data on all the EVT trials for stroke. They included all the patients who got EVT and then they model their functional outcomes. So the outcome is functional MRS type stuff, outcomes against various process measure times like ED to needle time, ED to reperfusion time, last known well time to reperfusion time, etc. In this way, they get an estimate of the effect of a longer time to EVT or, you know, needle to EVT or door to EVT or whatever it is against those functional outcomes. Importantly, despite the title where it says, you know, a meta-analysis of individual patient data from seven randomized controlled trials, sounds like it's a meta-analysis of random... It's not. This is observational data that arises from randomized control trials, but there's no control groups here. All of these people got EVT, just some of them got it a little bit earlier in their time course and some of it got a little bit later. So let's not confuse this for actual randomized data.
3: So it is from randomized control trials, but it's just from the group who are randomized to EVT.
2: It's just the intervention group, right? They're not randomizing people to different times of getting EVT. We're observing no, they good got it. That's
3: clarification. Yeah.
2: So they found almost 800 patients who underwent EVT across the trials. 52% had last known well time of less than four hours, and about 50% had last known well time between four and 12 hours. When they plug all this into a linear statistical model, they find that the longer the last known well time to any process measure or any process measure to reperfusion is associated with loss in quality of life years. For example... In the abstract, they highlight for every one second delay in door to perfusion time, that is associated with 2.4 hours of lost quality of life. It looks like this effect, this time association between door to needle or whatever, and functional outcomes is mostly limited to the group that had a last known well time of less than four hours. When you look at the group, that had last known well time of four to 12 hours, it becomes a lot flatter, let's just say. The authors end up making an argument that these process times, time from arrival to reperfusion or whatever, is super important, and there may be a little truth to that, but their modeling strategy is very crude. It's this linear time model without threshold effects or anything like that, and importantly, it pools together studies that had very different methodologies, inclusion criteria, etc., which could account for the outcomes. So while I think it's probably generally true that if you're going to undergo EVT, probably sooner is better. The idea that each second matters is really silly. And if it's ever really studied, like you know, in some kind of more randomized way and with more rigorous methodology, I'm almost certain it'll be proved to be untrue. Yeah.
3: This I mean this this is well, we read the (laughs) abstract. We're sort of like, you know, four seconds later we're taking eight hours off a person's Mm -hmm. life is like, you know it's absurd. It reminds me of, you remember the Princess Bride? Of course. You know, when they have like the man in black and mm-hmm. he's in that thing and the Humperdick is there and he's like, you know, turning up the die and it's like they could take hours off of his life. <laughs> Do you remember
2: that? I don't remember that part. Yeah. Really? So
3: he's in, the, he's in the thing and they pull down the lever and it has this little, the water wheel going. It takes they, one hour, four hours, you know, if they were trying to get information <laughs> from him, torture him. And then they like spins the whole thing at the end and it's supposed to take 20. You remember that?
2: I'm, I'm drawing a blank now at this point. <laughs> but yes. and, and the the re- watch The yeah, Princess Bride. You know, it's a movie I do tend to watch like every 10 years or so. But
3: anyway. Well, as Mike can attest to, nothing leaves this, this trap of a brain about TV. TV, yeah. You put some,
2: <laughs> I mean, you put math in there and the guy forgets it instantly. But if yeah. it's like some esoteric it's comment. it's season is, one, yeah. saved
3: by the bell. Yeah. No problem. He's I got a, it in he's there. got it in
2: there. Anyway, the reason this happens in this kind of study is that if you model this and you, you know it's like, okay, people at time zero have really good neuro outcomes and people at time, you know, if they wait three years to get their EVT have bad outcomes and you just draw a straight line, then yeah, obviously it looks like each delta increment yeah. in time has a similar effect, but that's obviously not going to be true in real life. In real life, there's going to be thresholds. So the
3: overall message is good. The way they reported it, a little bit silly
1: edit this commentary
2: This non-randomized observational study of patients undergoing EVT for stroke shows an association between times to ED reperfusion and functional outcomes. The results support earlier EVT but cannot be seriously viewed as demonstrating a causal relationship because of the observational nature and the relatively simple analytic strategy.
3: Quick take Abstract number 9 Comparing Real-Time and Intermittently-Scanned Continuous Glucose Monitoring in Adults with Type 1 Diabetes, ALERT, a 6-month prospective multicenter randomized control trial. This is by Visser et al. in Lancet. So this one is going to be done as a quick take. But just so you know, in the recent years, the world of home glucose self-monitoring has moved away from finger stick blood glucose tests. This is like a bit of a dinosaur, actually. And towards the use of subcutaneous sensors and transmitters that are capable of reporting glycemic levels either on demand, so these are called intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitors, when patients basically use like their receiver or smartphone to scan the device and they know what their glucose level is at that moment, or in real-time continuously. And this is called real-time continuous glucose monitoring, where the sensor sends glucose values to the patient's receiver, smartphone, or smartwatch continuously 24-7 every like five minutes here they're asking which one is better in the alert one trial the authors from belgium compare the two in a prospective double-arm parallel group multi-center rct where they enrolled 254 patients with type 1 diabetes already using an intermittently scanned system and randomize them to six months of more of the same, the intermittent scan, or switching them to a real-time transmission of continuous glucose levels. Time and range was higher with the real-time than with the intermittently scanned, and hemoglobin A1c was lower. Fear of hypoglycemia was also lower in the real-time system, as were the number of patients in the group that experienced episodes of severe hypoglycemia, 3 versus 13. So I went through the data kind of quick because I don't think that data is very relevant to the practice of emergency medicine. But there's a few things that are. So skin reactions were more common with the intermittently scanned sensors and bleeding with sensor insertion was more common with the real-time sensor. So there's like something about the adhesive they use and the way the needle enters your skin where they make them different. And I think that Generally speaking, as providers in the house of medicine, we should have some knowledge about the fact that people don't do finger sticks anymore, right? And when they come in with one of these sensors on to know what it is generally and what it's supposed to do and how you read it, you know, And interestingly, I mean, if a patient came in with one on, you could say like, hey, how's your glucose been over the last X and take a look. Like if they know how to use it, they could show you. So we should generally know what these things are if we see them on a patient's body have some idea about like the benefits and different types of them, maybe complications that occur. There was a paper in JAMA from this month that came very close to making the cut, and we picked this one instead because it was from Lancet, and that was using the same technology on patients with type 2 diabetes, which is very novel, and it showed there that A1C was improved as well. So if there's a big uptake and reading of that paper, and all of a sudden patients with type 2 diabetes start to use these continuous glucose monitoring systems, then we will see them in the ED a lot. So we should know what they are, know what they look like, and have some general knowledge about what they can do.
1: Is commentary:
3: In this prospective randomized control trial, the authors found increased quality of life and time in range among patients who used real-time Continuous glucose monitors compared with those who use the intermittently scanned version. These have changed the world for patients with diabetes, and we should have some basic knowledge about what these devices are, what the potential complications could be, and their potential value in case a patient asks about them or we want to refer a patient to use one.
2: Abstract number 10 use of high sensitivity cardiac troponin in patients with kidney impairment, a randomized clinical trial by Gallagher et al., and JAMA Internal Medicine. And this, I should be able to do this one pretty quick because it's a follow-up article to one we reviewed a few months ago from the high-stakes investigators that looked at how reclassifying patients' troponin result and disclosing those results to providers as hospitals move from conventional troponin assays to high-sensitivity assays impacted outcomes. The key finding of that trial was that among all comers, patients who were reclassified from troponin negative to troponin positive and in whom the provider was aware of that reclassification had the same outcomes as those who were reclassified from negative to positive, but for whom the provider was not aware of that reclassification. And that called into question the true utility of the high-sensitivity troponin. In this study, the authors take that same data set, so same study, same data set, and look at the subpopulation of people with renal dysfunction to determine two really important outcomes. First, how often is the high-sensitivity troponin elevated in patients with renal dysfunction and how many of them are reclassified as negative to positive? And two, do the patients who were reclassified and had that disclosure to their provider have better outcomes than those who were reclassified but not disclosed, again, among the population with renal dysfunction? This is a huge study, 10 centers, 46,000 people, of which 10,000, so almost, yeah, just about a quarter of them, had elevated high-sensitivity troponins. 4,200 of those patients had renal dysfunction. So, results. As the level of renal dysfunction increased, so too did the chance of having an elevated high-sensitivity troponin. That, I don't think, is going to come as an enormous shock, but the magnitude is what's interesting. Basically, for those patients with a GFR less than 30, 66% of them had a positive high-sensitivity troponin, so two-thirds. Much more common than not to have a positive troponin. When using the conventional troponin assay, 37% of patients with renal dysfunction had elevated troponin, any level of dysfunction. This increased to 47% when you use the high-sensitivity troponin assay. So, pretty large jump in the number of people who are having abnormal troponins, positive troponins. However, there was no increase in the incidence of adjudicated MI. So, you got a lot more positive troponins, but no more increase in the number of MIs. In terms of outcomes, like the parent study, the reclassified and disclosed group had the same overall incidence of MACE- than did the reclassified and not disclosed group, 25% versus 24%. So overall, this work continues to show the problem with high-sensitivity troponins, that a lot of them are positive, particularly in patients with renal impairment. And those patients that are newly classified as positive do not really seem to benefit. So it looks like we are likely to end up as these things roll out more and more with more ambiguity and difficult decision making in this group of patients without a lot of patient benefit in return. Editor's commentary. In this large study, high sensitivity troponins were positive in almost 50% of patients with renal impairment compared with 37% using conventional troponin assays. Those patients reclassified as positive did not have better outcomes than similar patients whose reclassification was not known.
3: Abstract number 11, Efficacy and Safety of Non-Antibiotic Outpatient Treatment in Mild Acute Diverticulitis, the DYNAMO study, a multi-center randomized open-label non-inferiority trial. This is by Mora Lopez in the Annals of Surgery. Now, although it's common practice for those of us in emergency medicine to treat acute diverticulitis with antibiotics and maybe even observation or admission, surgeons have suggested that there's absolutely no scientific basis for us doing this. There have been several recent randomized controlled trials, all of them with very cool names, one of them being the Diablo trial. It's a point of reference. Any of them
2: called the perfect study? (laughs) No, no
3: perfect. Basically showing that Antibiotic therapy neither accelerated recovery nor prevented complications or recurrence of diverticulitis. The World Society of Emergency Surgery guidelines were updated in 2020 and currently recommend no antibiotics or admission for well-appearing uncomplicated acute diverticulitis. The DYNAMO study is a multi-center prospective open-label non-inferiority RCT with a primary objective to assess if outpatients treated without antibiotics would have different admission rates, and secondary outcomes of the study included things like ED revisits, pain, and complications. They enrolled patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis on CT who had adequate family support so somebody could kind of watch them at home, no comorbidities, good symptom control in the ED, quiet labs, and normal vitals. All patients got alternating acetaminophen and ibuprofen to go home with, and the intervention arm got additional Augmentin. They randomized 480 patients. The eventual admission rate was 5.8% in the antibiotic group versus 3.3% in the control group. So they got their non-inferiority that they thought they were going to see. The ED revisit rate was also similar at 6.7% in the antibiotic group versus 7% in the controls. Pain was higher in the antibiotic arm at two days, but then higher in the control arm at later points in the study. In terms of complications, there were no emergency surgeries needed in either group. The main addition to the body of literature that already exists on this topic is demonstrating the safety of an outpatient treatment strategy as patients were at least admitted for observation in the other RCTs on this topic. So they kind of were like, like some of the appendicitis stuff. Like, let's watch them for a day. do something crazy. Yeah, we're not going to get antibodies. But here, they just sent them home, right, and said that this strategy was safe.
2: And it makes it much closer to emergency medicine then. Makes it actually actionable
3: at this point, right? So the main limitations of the study include a loss to follow-up rate of just under 10% and the high probability for sort of a selection bias, right? If the treating physician had any concern that the patient would not do well, without antibiotics, they could just say, nah, they're not eligible for the study. Right, right, it was too tender. Too tender, too much on the CT, maybe there's a little hint of something wife, there. But he should, you know, there's the no daughter. You know. Exactly right. And 369 of the 849 cases of acute uncomplicated diverticulitis that look like they maybe should have qualified were actually excluded. Now, figuring out the right candidate for no antibiotics will be hard. As all of the randomized trials up to date have had a massive number of exclusions, right? You really had to be like pristine looking to be able to go home with no
2: antibiotics. This is almost like CT read diverticulitis. <laughs> no,
3: they had diverticulitis. It wasn't quite that, but all these secondary signs of abscess or a little bit of free they didn't have any of that but No stuff. white
2: count even? Labs quiet? Is that what you mean? Like they?
3: Yeah, you have to have all of Like they looked at inflammatory markers and stuff. You have to be pretty quiet. And although... Actually, so you know, I'm talking about these World Society of Emergency Surgery, the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons also have endorsed this approach, mm. right? So the societies are moving this way, but I haven't seen similar support at the local level, sort of at community EDs. Or at the bedside? <laughs> I don't know anybody who's doing this. And I would suspect before we're going to change to a no-antibiotic strategy, it's not just the surgeons who have to buy in. It's all three of the relevant organizations and patients. So emergency medicine has to buy into this approach, and GI has to buy into this. And they have not updated their guidelines to say that no antibiotics is okay. So yeah. for now, I'm still giving antibiotics, but know that the evidence for that practice in a very well-appearing patient is saying maybe it's
1: unnecessary. And it is commentary.
3: In this randomized control trial, the authors found no significant difference in admission rates, ED visits, pain, or need for surgery among patients with uncomplicated acute diverticulitis discharged either with or without antibiotics. There is a growing body of evidence showing this same finding, but the key before we can all start doing this is to have a solid and agreed upon definition of what makes up uncomplicated diverticulitis and to have buy-in from all relevant parties who might follow up in the patient, including GI, who have not been quite as eager to change their recommendations.
2: Abstract number 12, Clinical Impact of High-Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin Implementation in the Community by Ola et al. in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. So this is part of my little duet of high-sensitivity troponin papers, and this is some of the first real-world data on high-sensitivity troponins in the U.S. and how the rollout has gone in terms of identifying more MIs and affecting resource utilization. By way of background, of course, we suspect that high-sensitivity troponins should pick up more MIs, ideally type 1 MIs, right? The kind due to plaque rupture. But we know that it is so sensitive that high-sensitivity troponins may result in a large amount of additional unnecessary testing as well, because so many people test positive with, quote, myocardial injury or something like that that's not a type 1 MI. Finally, the general theory is that the high-sensitivity troponin is so sensitive that people with negative values should be able to be rapidly discharged from the ED, decreasing turnaround times and, you know, sort of making the ED a much more streamlined process. How this all nets out is really not known. We're picking up more high-sensitivity troponin positives, and that's gumming up the system, but we're discharging people faster, so that's lubricating the system. So, you know, what's the net effect? This is a retrospective before and after study from 2018 to 2019 that covered the period of transition from 4th gen to 5th gen troponins, which is the high-sensitivity troponin assay, at medical centers in Wisconsin. It appears the entry criteria were simply showing up at one of their two EDs and getting a troponin done. Doesn't appear that there were any criteria related to symptoms, so anybody who got a trope was eligible. The primary endpoint was the incidence of positive troponins that were adjudicated to indicate acute MI. Okay? Adjudication was done by the study authors. Further, the MIs were then classified as a type 1 MI, the one we really are interested in, the occlusive STEMI-style MI, and type 2 MIs, which is the kind that is like an old school demand ischemia kind of thing. These type 2 MIs are much less lethal and don't benefit nearly as much from intervention or you know PCI-type interventions. Ultimately, there were 3,500 patients enrolled, half and half, half in the prephase and half in the postphase. The proportion with elevated troponins increased from, get this, 15% in the pre-phase to 47% in the post-phase, which is obviously statistically significant and enormous, over three times higher, almost half, from less than a quarter to almost half. So it's huge.
3: half the tropes you sent came back positive. <laughs> Come back positive, yeah.
2: The proportion with adjudicated MI also increased, but not as dramatically. It went from about 4% to 8%. But the majority of those MIs were type 2 MIs. The increase in type 1 MI was much more modest from just under 2% to just under 3%, but still significant. There was, you know, they picked up some more ostensibly serious MIs. Overall, there was an increase in cardiac catheterization from about 2% to about 4% in the post implementation phase, which is probably not surprising since so many positive troponins were done. And also, among those who had negative tests, that small group that had a negative troponin test, there was a net increase in the proportion that were discharged home from the ED, from 60% in the pre to 75% in the post. This is counterbalanced by the high number of positive troponin patients, so the net effect was that the same number of people were discharged from the ED before and after. 55% before, so that, 55% so after. The, the
3: benefit that we were hoping to see on that back end, didn't see.
2: We didn't see. That's exactly right. There's a lot of problems with this study. It's retrospective. The adjudicators were unblinded. So I don't know what their sort of propensities were, but they weren't. And it includes all patients who got a troponin, not just those who got it for suspected ACS. So if you get some sick person, really sick person who's being admitted for eurosepsis, you throw a troponin on there, it's positive. Or sometimes
3: even just from triage. You someone got up. chest pain, you get a trope, even though At least those ones had, it, had old. chest yeah. pain.
2: You know, I mean, it's not exactly the cohort we're really interested in, the one that ED provider says, I need a troponin to help me out here. But still, you know, this but the is truth the net is, effect.
3: It's more representative of real life because we do order troponin a little a bit more indiscriminately because it isn't this high-sensitive version. we got to get better.
2: Yeah. So, you know, at the end, the study somewhat allays the fears that high-sensitivity troponins will gum up the EDs with low-level positives because at the end of the day, it was same discharge before, same discharge after. But it also throws a little bit of a wet blanket on the idea that it's really going to streamline the processes. So, you know, right now, I mean, this is just very early real-world data. I guess I'm reassured a little bit, to be honest, by this. It picked up a few more MIs and it didn't grossly increase the number of patients getting worked up in the ED and, you know, with longer turnaround times and all that kind of stuff. So overall, on balance, it's, it looks maybe a little bit good, but not nearly as good as maybe we were hoping we were going to be able to discharge three times as many people from the ED.
1: Editor's commentary:
2: This is the first real-world data from the United States of the effects of transitioning from conventional to high-sensitivity troponins. The key findings are that implementing high-sensitivity troponins markedly increased the number of positive tests and identifies a small but significantly higher percent of acute MIs. Angiogram use increases modestly. Of those with negative tests, a greater fraction were discharged home. On balance, however, neither the amount of people sent home directly or ED length of stay improved post-implementation. More study will be needed to determine if the additional identification of type one and type two MIs yields improved patient outcomes.
3: Abstract number thirteen: Delivery room interventions for hypothermia in preterm neonates: a systematic review and network meta-analysis. And this is by Abira Malatha et al. from JAMA Pediatrics. And this one was sent in to us actually by a listener to cover. So thanks, Justin Carlson. In the OB literature. They reference something called the golden
2: minute. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's I
3: had actually never heard that term yeah, sure, before. Sure, everybody knows about that. It's the minute after birth when babies oh, need to be... Oh, it's the minute
2: after... I thought it was the minute before sunset. <laughs> no, that's not it.
3: i have confused. Now I'm interested. See, all right. I knew you'd never heard of it. So this is the... They say right after birth, you kind of have a minute to take a baby, dry the baby, warm the baby, stimulate, position them correctly on like a flat surface, and give supplemental oxygen if needed. Neonatal hypothermia is not uncommon post-delivery, and the association between severity of hypothermia and risk of mortality has been well described in the literature. Now, in the L&D suite, they're sort of well-equipped with every tool they could possibly need to warm a baby, warm the room, but when a preterm baby is born unexpectedly in the ED, we might be struggling to get things together, get the right equipment, and maybe we don't even have a panda nearby to be able to put the baby in to warm them. So here the authors conduct a network meta-analysis looking at primary randomized control trials comparing nine different techniques for warming preterm neonates, most of which include the use of a plastic bag or wrap. Now, Mike recently, I think, covered a network meta-analysis and sort of described in a little bit of detail what it is, but in short, it allows for both direct comparisons of interventions within randomized control trials and indirect comparisons across trials using a common comparator. So they identified 34 studies that enrolled 3,688 neonates. The mean gestational age was 29 weeks. Now, compared with routine care alone, a plastic bag or wrap with a thermal mattress, a plastic cap, a plastic bag or wrap with heated humidified respiratory gas, plastic bag with wrap with plastic cap, thermal mattress, Basically everything they looked at worked when compared okay. with like a nothing. Because everything did something. The only one they didn't find to work significantly was the skin to skin contact. That is, you know, what that's like the new trend in OPUS. Right. There's babies when you put in the mother's chest to initiate the bond, things like that. Most things did work. When compared with routine care alone, a plastic bag or wrap with heated, humidified respiratory gas was associated, associated, that's the key here with less risk of major brain injury at a risk ratio of 0.23, and a plastic bag or wrap with a plastic cap was associated with a decreased risk of mortality at a risk ratio of 0.19. Now, the idea of using a plastic wrap or plastic bag over the body, right, you basically just take a bag or plastic wrap, it looks just like regular Saran wrap, kind of a thing, truthfully. Okay, um, is, I was
2: wondering what it was. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, as
3: a barrier to reduce heat loss is not a new idea. This has been around since the 70s. People have done this and is traditionally applied without wiping the baby down first. So, you know, which is kind of what we do. We take a baby out, we wipe it quickly before we warm it. But if they're sitting here, if it's a preterm neonate and they come out, you just sort of leave the amniotic fluid on and quickly wrap the baby. And for what it's worth, most of the trials using the plastic cap do dry the baby's heads. You kind of do like a quick dry of their so it head, slip and then off, you, or yeah, and then, and then you sort of wrap their body in like this Saran wrappy looking thing. Now, what's interesting about this paper is they seem to be suggesting that this should be evaluated as the new standard for all preterm babies. They're saying like even if you're in the L and D suite with all the things you need and you deliver like a 28 week neonate, even if you're gonna put them on the panda, you should put them in the plastic wrap first, right? that's kind of what they're suggesting here. And I think this paper is largely for OB practitioners to sort out what the right practice is. But I think that the value of this paper for ED providers is a couple. One is in resource poor settings. This is like a little tip and trick kind of to know about. If a baby comes out, you can wrap them in some plastic wrap if you don't have something else to use that does warm them. We have evidence that that does warm the baby. And I also think in the emergency department, you might use it if you're transporting a preterm neonate to another part of the hospital, right? which is hopefully- Or another hospital. Are, yeah, which is what we are doing very quickly, right? As soon as the baby's born, we want someone who's very skilled at taking care of these babies to do it. So knowing that if you're just kind of standing there struggling and you're not sure what to do, like you're wrapping a blanket, if you have some plastic wrap or a plastic bag or some kind of something plastic that you can wrap around the baby- That probably is going to have some value to warm them while you transport them to someone who can do more of a definitive
2: care of that baby. I I mean, I think for me, honestly, just uh, this will reflect my own ignorance, but just being mentally aware that hypothermia is such an issue is a benefit to covering this paper. Frankly, you know, because I my mind isn't going there if I'm delivering a baby, much less a preterm baby, and it's all about you know resuscitation, oxygen, all those things, which is very important, obviously. But now I've got another priority to think about that. I usually just take for granted that the panda will take care of that or something. So this is good.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. In this methodologically well-conducted network meta-analysis, the authors found that using a plastic bag or wrap over the baby's body and head in conjunction with routine warming improved outcomes in preterm neonates. I would not do this routinely without seeing obese societies adopting the practice first But I think it is good to know about, particularly if you have a hypothermic neonate or working somewhere where you have limited resources.
2: Abstract number 14, risk factors and outcomes after a brief, resolved, unexplained event, a multicenter study by Teeter et al. in pediatrics. So in 2015, the AAP abandoned the disdainful term ALTI in favor of the much more benign sounding brief, resolved, unexplained event or brew, as we've stated earlier, also the name of my dog. Largely, the characteristics are the same, but this changing terminology was meant to relax clinicians and parents a little bit when discussing the findings and the treatment plans. Like, for example, it's weird to tell a parent, Yeah, you had a a parent life threatening event. We're going to send you home now. There's like something wrong with the way the word life threatening event interacts with going home. For review, a brew is basically a scary event in a child less than one year that lasts less than one minute and is associated with one or more of the following, and that's central cyanosis or pallor. Redness is no longer in the definition. We used to just say any old change in color, right, with the old school alti. Nor is change in lip color. So if your lips became a little purple, that doesn't count. It has to be central cyanosis. Change in breathing that does not include a breath-holding spell, a change in tone, or an altered level of consciousness or altered mental status. Further, the AAP specified qualities that made a brew high risk versus low risk. High risk features were that the kid was less than 60 days old, they were a preemie and had a post-conception age of less than 45 weeks, or CPR was done by somebody who knew something about medicine by a trained professional. And then finally, to be low risk, you had to have nothing really terrible sounding on history. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the epidemiology of brews since the new diagnosis was implemented and to determine if there are any features that are particularly associated with a serious final diagnosis. The study itself is a retrospective case series from 15 pediatric hospitals between 2015 when the criteria changed through 2018. They identified children who either had a diagnosis of brew or who had an ICD-10 code that is associated with it. And they did this because you should not be diagnosing a brew for a child who comes to the ED with a brief unexplained event that then is found to have like a dysrhythmia from congenital heart disease because that's an explained event at that point. That child should be diagnosed with the other stuff. The authors abstracted the data on each of these children and looked for a few things. Key findings or the key things they were looking for were what fraction of these were admitted, what fraction were high risk, and are there any particular features, like individual level features, that were associated with serious final diagnoses. And those serious final diagnoses did not have to be made at the index visit. They could be made within the several months afterwards. The chart review methods are okay, but certainly not great. They ultimately identified 2,000 children with BRU, of whom 87% were classified as high risk by the chart reviewers. 87%, so nine, almost 9 out of 10. Interestingly, only 63% were admitted. so. We're discharging some of these, quote, high-risk kids. The kids were, on average, very young, about 40 days old. Serious diagnoses were identified in only 4%, 87 children in total. About half of those serious diagnoses were diagnosed at some point after the initial index visit, too. So it's kind of interesting. Most common, this was seizure. That's what they ultimately diagnosed was seizure. And then some of them had airway abnormalities, like Tracheomalacia. And then there were eight children that had abusive head trauma. So those are like the three most common things, although all of it's pretty uncommon. The AAP high risk criteria had a negative predictive value of 97%. So if you were low risk, there's very close to no chance of having a serious diagnosis, but it had a positive predictive value of only 4% because almost no one qualifies. Ultimately, patients with history of previous similar event, event duration of greater than a minute and altered level of consciousness had higher odds of a serious diagnosis. Those are the features that were associated with a higher probability of serious diagnosis. So if you've had it before, if it lasted more than a minute, or if you had like altered mental status. And I think the reason that the recurrence was one was those are the seizure kits, right? They're like they had this before, and that's a, you know it doesn't mean the kid ended up needing to be intubated or anything, but they ended up with the serious but I diagnosis. Part of the
3: definition of brew is it had to be less but, than a minute. You are correct. So sir. if you're, that's not even the brew.
2: Then you know don't don't look at it. Yeah, you know, just don't analyze. Don't, don't look at it. That's how they reported it out. Maybe, but it was a diagnosis. They didn't require if someone diagnosed it, it was diagnosed. It wasn't like they adjudicated that diagnosis if if it was diagnosed. So, this is definitely not earth-shattering information. These brief, resolved, unexplained events remains a very nonspecific term, and almost all of them actually end up having a high-risk feature that puts them into this recommended to be admitted category. Despite that, the large majority of them are never found to have a serious medical diagnosis, you know, whether they have high-risk feature or not. The authors talk about using these findings to engage in shared decision-making with parents presumably regarding admission decisions. And I think that might be a fine takeaway to sort of realize that brew admissions are generally low yield unless there's something that's obviously wrong to begin with. But I'm not going to recommend discharging neonates with high-risk features for brew until the AAP revises its guidelines.
1: Yeah,
3: it seems to me. So this study didn't really do what I was hoping it would do. It didn't tell me which high-risk kids are actually high-risk. It gave us more of like the state of play, right? Like we're admitting about two thirds of these kids, very few actually have anything. So I think it's good knowledge to know like what a brew kind of looks like, but I can't change my practice. I
2: totally agree. And remember, they were modeling this using logistic regressions and whatnot, and they've got 80 outcomes total. There are 80 kids that had a serious medical diagnosis. Way overfit. There's a very high probability. So we're going to need something that's like tens of thousands of children so that we can get Many hundred serious diagnoses. So Hi, pediatric researchers. Get on the case. Oh, I'm sure they are.
1: this Commentary.
2: This very large, reasonably conducted retrospective chart review shows that 87% of bruises have a high risk feature according to the AAP definition. Overall, the risk of serious medical diagnosis was only 4%. Generally, these results support the notion that the definition of brew may be too broad to be highly useful and perhaps should be retooled to be more specific. But in the interim, there is no compelling reason to alter the current recommended practice of discharging patients with low-risk brew criteria and basically admitting those with high-risk criteria.
3: Abstract number 15. Pilot randomized control trial of virtual reality versus standard of care during pediatric laceration repair. This is by Goldman et al. from the Journal of Child and Adolescent Trauma. So when performing painful procedures among pediatric patients, common options for sort of controlling the behavior of the patient, making a safe environment for the procedure are sedation. One thing we do, using child life specialists. And I have some experience with that from back in the day when I worked at a pediatric ED and they were awesome like they are very very effective at what they do surprisingly so feels like hypnosis or brutane right and that's just what we did in resident c that's like how mike and i were kind of <laughs> trained and we have covered papers previously on some alternatives like videos like watching videos and things but here the authors are evaluating the use of a vr virtual reality headset
2: Have you ever worn one of these yeah, things yeah i, no, I my never son have. has one he has an oculus it's weird
3: the Google Oculus? Is
2: that uh, what it no, 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 no. It's just, it's just Oculus. It's its own thing. It's like, yeah, it's a headset that goes over your head and you play 3D games, and it's pretty. Does it feel f- pretty real? It feels immersive for sure. Okay. Well, real? That- I'm not sure because it doesn't look like you're in a real world. Right, right. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So
3: I have never. Put you definitely one on,
2: will but- run into a wall. Well, it has a thing that senses walls and stuff, so you don't do that. But yeah, you'll punch somebody if they're like standing too close and stuff for sure.
3: It sounds cool. Like they, the whole yeah, paper cool. sounds really cool, right? Just the fact that they use this at all, and there actually is some evidence that in medical settings, VR can reduce the perception of pain. But and that you, so you don't find that surprising. I haven't put one on. You're just kind of into what you're doing. You feel yeah, like you're you're,
2: you're, killing, you're, zo- you're killing zombies if you feel a little pain. It's well, that's like, not what they
3: did here. No zombie killing. So this is a prospective they let the zombies live. They did. They just watched. They played with them. This is a prospective randomized control trial from Canada, enrolling patients aged six to sixteen years. Who had a laceration seen in the emergency department? Patients were randomized to either a VR headset, and they said that the one they used cost 20 bucks. This was like a really cheap The one, the intervention. one my
2: son used cost me $500. Yeah.
3: And it was preloaded with a VR roller coaster app that's okay. what they put on it or a comparator arm. And the comparator arm basically was a treating provider could use whatever distraction method they liked.
2: That I'm just be. picturing like an actual roller coaster. <laughs> yeah.
3: I love that idea. <laughs> they go to Disneyland. <laughs> so it could be like watching TV, it could be listening to music, it could be watching your parent's smartphone or whatever it is, you know, or the use of a child life specialist. The primary outcome was post-procedure pain as measured by the FACES scale, the revised FACES scale. And the secondary outcome, was anxiety, which they measured something called the Venham situational anxiety score. Present data from 62 randomized patients. Age was about 10. The gender, location, and length of the laceration about the same. Both groups had three centimeter lacerations. Number of sutures needed were just under six in both groups as was the use of oral, topical, or local anesthetics, time to complete the procedure, time to discharge, all that stuff, which we expect to be pretty similar between whether you show them a phone or put on the, you know, the VR thing. The mean pain and anxiety post-procedure were similar across the arms. 1.84 for the VR versus 1.47 for controls. Anxiety, as measured by the scale I'd never heard of, was basically exactly the same between the two groups. Now, they say that children rated the VR experience more positively than the control experience. And if for some reason, one of the authors or somebody who knows an author of this paper is listening to this podcast, I would love to hear from you because I looked at the table and it definitely seems like the opposite. Like the numbers are really clearly stated in there, but either way, the difference was small and both groups were generally pretty satisfied with their distraction method. So this is a small pilot study I do wish, even though it's small, that they had detailed what options were used in the control patients, right? Like, are we comparing VR to an iPhone or are we comparing VR to, like, reading a book? You know, I, I just don't know. But I think the idea of using VR is kind of cool. And we saw, actually saw a couple of papers about this this month. Yep. So I'm going to try VR head. At some point, I got to put one on and see what it feels
2: like. Hey, come on over, buddy. That sounds good.
1: Editor's Commentary.
3: In this pilot randomized control trial, the authors found the use of a VR headset for kids in the ED getting a laceration repair to be basically as effective as more traditional methods of distraction during the procedure. Good to have lots of options so you can pick the most age-appropriate one for your patient and the one they say they'll like the best.
2: Quick Take Abstract number 16, and this is a quick take. It's the effects of IV eptinezumab versus placebo on headache pain and most bothersome symptom when initiated during a migraine attack, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Winner et al., and it's in JAMA. So, just really briefly, migraine headaches are obviously a common cause of ED visits, and there are numerous abortive agents that we can use. The newest kids on the block are these calcitonin gene related peptide antagonists. I think maybe remepigent or re, what is it is it remepagent or regemapant I think it's regemapant actually is the one that I think has gotten the most press and one that we talked about on either EMA or Paper Chase maybe 2 EMA. years ago yeah. yeah okay so this drug eptinezumab, is a monoclonal antibody administered via infusion every 3 months That has been shown to reduce the frequency and severity of migraine headaches when used as prophylaxis for patients with chronic migraines. And this is a monoclonal antibody against this calcitonin gene related peptide. This study examines the effect of this medicine as an abortive therapy for people suffering from acute migraine who are otherwise not on the drug in a chronic manner. They enrolled 480 clinic patients with acute migraine to receive eptinezumab versus placebo. I'm like, ethics, anyone? But, you know, it's like, okay, got a severe acute migraine, let me give you placebo. Interesting. Here's, here's a sugar <laughs> pill. Yeah, here's a sugar pill versus Sorry. a monoclonal antibody. Anyway, the drug is administered over 30 minutes, and it was infused over 30 minutes IV. The primary outcome was time to headache resolution and time to absence of the most bothersome symptom, pain, photophobia, etc. And that's actually a pretty common metric used in migraine headaches because for some people it's the pain that's bothersome and for other people it's nausea or whatever. Results. The effect size of eptinezumab was quite modest but significantly better than placebo. At two hours, 23% of the eptinezumab group had headache resolution versus 12% of the placebo. Average time to resolution of most bothersome symptom was faster at 4 hours in the eptinezumab group versus 9 hours for the placebo group. A small percent, 2% of the eptinezumab group showed mild hypersensitivity reaction, and otherwise the side effects were the same. Basically, I included this paper because we're seeing a proliferation of these calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists in the treatment of migraine. Clearly, this is not ready for ED use, as the treatment effect is really small, it's slow for us, thirty-minute infusion and all that kind of stuff. And the drug is expensive. Hard to exactly characterize how much it costs. By my guess, it looks like it's about one thousand to fourteen hundred bucks at a wholesale cost for a single dose infusion.
3: And we have no idea how it works compared to, to our standard yeah, therapy absolutely. for migraine headaches. Absolutely, which... so
2: it's a mess. I'm not advocating. I did not put the eptinezumab across your, my. <laughs> what's that on your car <laughs>
3: windshield? Eptinezumab.
2: <laughs> my, my gold-plated car. Yeah. I uh, thought it was a little loud when I was driving over for
3: an electric car. It's wow. all those gold plates like that. It's
2: got bling. My diamond air freshener is in there. When did you get that diamond grill in your teeth? I <laughs> oh, just, you noticed. I just
3: noticed that too. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I'm certainly not advocating for this. And I just want people to be aware, us to be aware that people are being put on these agents as outpatients for chronic therapy. Maybe some of them are even getting it for acute therapy. And I thought it might just be worth us being generally aware of this class of medication, their indications, and where, so that when we start hearing about them and seeing them, we don't look silly. Which I hate when somebody comes in on some new medicine, and I'm just like, oh yeah, sure, I've heard of that, you know.
1: this commentary.
2: In this relatively large trial of clinic patients with acute migraine, eptinezumab outperformed placebo in terms of time to resolution of headache and most bothersome symptom. The effect size was not altogether impressive given the difficulty in administration and price tag. Nevertheless, this is a new, exciting class of medications that are now available for migraine sufferers that ED providers should be somewhat familiar with.
3: Abstract number 17. The Treatment of Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children by McArdle et al. in the New England... Journal of Medicine, and this paper has the honor of being the only COVID paper of the month. So MIS-C is a rare but serious complication of SARS-CoV-2 infection, usually occurring about two to six weeks after the child was infected with SARS-CoV-2. Non-specific symptoms include fever and rash, but abdominal pain and a slightly older age of the patient are some of the things that help differentiate it from diseases with similar presentations like Kawasaki's. IVIG has been proposed as sort of like a best guess treatment for this, mainly because of its sort of similarity in presentation, I think, to Kawasaki's and some other things like that. But not enough time has passed, nor have we seen enough cases to really perform a meaningful randomized control trial to see if this thing has benefit. So what the authors of this observational cohort study did was they invited physicians from around the world, no matter where you work, they just sort of put a call out saying if you had a Miss C case or a suspected miss C case, and that's where this kind of gets a little bit messy, upload all this information to this centralized web, you know, data housing site, right? About like the presentation, some vitals, some labs. It's kind of dependent on these Filled participating
2: fill out your fa- ORM data your, collection red, sheet. Your own red caps case report file. That's okay.
3: exactly right. And then they collected de-identified longitudinal data regarding presenting features, demographic characteristics, lab findings, what treatment they got, IVIG, glucocorticoids, some other biologic agent, and supportive therapies in addition to the relative important outcome information. But this was all provided by these sort of volunteer physicians from around the globe who wanted to contribute to this study. Hmm. The three primary treatment groups that were large enough to be considered for comparison were IVIG alone. IVIG plus glucocorticoids, and glucocorticoids alone. And there were two primary outcomes. The first was a composite outcome of inotropic support or mechanical ventilation, either invasive or non-invasive, by day two or later and death. And the second was a reduction in disease severity on a seven-point ordinal scale between day zero and day two. Practitioners from 81 hospitals across 34 countries uploaded data for a total of 614 cases. Of these, 246 received primary treatment with IVIG alone, 208 IVIG plus glucocorticoids, 99 glucocorticoids alone, 22 with some other kind of immunomodulator, and 39 with no immunomodulator. Of these 614, so these were suspected cases of MIS-C, 490 ended up meeting the World Health Organization criteria for MIS-C. So. Maybe, you know, over a little bit over two thirds. In the sample as a whole, there was no significant differences in the primary outcome between whether you got IVIG alone, IVIG with glucocorticoids, or glucocorticoids alone. Time to reduction in disease severity was also similar. However, when they restricted the sample down to patients who met the criteria for MIS C, so that 400 and change patients, they found some evidence of benefit of glucocorticoids alone. Over IVIG alone for both of the primary outcomes, but you know it's hard to know what to make of this because they probably just gave the sicker kids like a bunch more stuff: yeah. the IVIG and the glucocorticoids. So you know they they do report that escalation of immunomodular therapy was less common among the kids who got everything up front: <laughs> IVIG plus glucocorticoids. Not much uh,
2: more to do, which yeah. is
3: not surprising, yeah. right? Obviously, there's not much more to add, like you said. So. There's a lot of data in this paper, but there's some pretty significant limitations to interpreting it, right? This is not a trial, and I'm quite sure illness severity impacted treatment selection. I'm 100% sure about that. I I would hope it does. Now, they (laughs) did do, I mean, this was in New England journals. They did do some sort of statistical tests and manipulations to try to reduce the chance of bias, like some propensity score matching and stuff. But still, you know, it's just no question about it. Most of the kids did end up getting IVIG alone or in combination, right? It was like only 100 or something who didn't of this sample. And the confidence intervals on their point estimates are huge. They're very, very wide. So for New England Journal, this is actually not world's greatest paper. It's kind of a hot mess, you know, truthfully. But I think, you know, we wanted to cover it for the same reason New England Journal probably wanted to publish it. It is Data from a large sample of Miss C cases, right? The largest that we have to date so far. And from like a bit of a methodologic perspective, I'd never really seen this style of enrollment before. Just fill out your own data yeah, collection Yeah, because it's sheet. barely
2: research. We usually cover research studies. Yeah, that's <laughs>
3: there's some issues. There's definitely some issues it sounds here. sounds like
2: something that like uh, you got a Google pop-up on your but, phone. You
3: know, but probably the most important reason to include it is like if you read this and you're like, oh, I'm not supposed to get, I'm supposed to give glucocorticoids and not IV, that is not what this actually shows. It just isn't. You really can't make much out of this paper and you should know that so you don't misinterpret their conclusion.
1: Edit commentary.
3: In this observational study with a unique web-based enrollment system utilized by 31 different countries to identify cases, the authors did not find a benefit between the treatment of suspected MIS-C between using IVIG and glucocorticoids in dual or single-agent regimens. However, Due to selection bias, suspicion of full data collection on the self-enrollment sheets, very wide confidence intervals, among other things, I think it's difficult to understand their conclusions, and it is still possible a true benefit of one strategy actually does exist.
2: Abstract number 18, should CT angiography of the supra-aortic arteries be performed systematically following attempted suicide by hanging? This is by Rebote at all in the Journal of Neuroradiology. So vascular injury, specifically supra-aortic artery dissections, is commonly observed in autopsies of hanging victims, particularly those who got like a judicial hanging. As a result, many institutions have implemented screening CTAs for all near hanging, regardless of their clinical state. However, For patients who survive hangings, these are the near hangings, the incidence of vascular events seems to be pretty low, but it's relatively understudied. This is a single-site retrospective review looking at, and I'm going to put in air quotes here, all cases of near hanging that came through the ED or ICU at this site in France who also had a CT angiogram of their neck. But they claim that the CT angio was like routine for them. Patients who had a head CT or a C-spine CT without the angio were not included in the study cohort. Clinical characteristics of the patients were abstracted from the medical record and included the things you might want to know. Their GCS, the need for intubation, dyspnea symptoms, and of course clinical outcomes including stroke and death. However, the chart review methods are terrible. They're just basically not described at all, and I suspect they would not meet our high Methodologic standards on EMA. The main research outcome of interest was the presence of supraaortic artery injury and the proportion of patients that had this in the setting of an otherwise normal exam, particularly normal like GCS. They found 242 near hanging patients in their query, but only 162 were included because 80 of them did not get a CTA, despite telling me that we got a CTA on everybody. The mean age was 38. And the study gets weird from there. So they say that 72 people apparently went straight to the ICU. No ED part. They just go straight to the ICU. And this is in France, so they, you know their systems are a little different. Maybe if they're really sick, you just go straight to the ICU. But they did that. 90 cases were at least initially evaluated in the ED. And so then they sort of had these two cohorts, the one that went to the ICU and then the ED cohort. Almost all of the patients in the ICU group had GCS of less than 8. or only a couple that didn't have GCS less than 8. 5% of that ICU group had one of these injuries, a supraortic artery injury. 25% of the ICU patients also had fractures to the thyroid cartilage or hyoid bone, and 1% had a C2 fracture. However, in the ED group, none of them had GCS less than 8, and almost all, like I think all but one, had a GCS of 15. In that cohort, none of them had a supraaortic artery injury. Though ten percent had a fracture of the thyroid cartilage or hyoid bone, there was no intracranial pathology observed. So this is a little bit of a messy study. Fundamentally saying that if you're in the ED with a GCS of fifteen, they never had this dissection. But there's so many problems with like understanding were they having symptoms, which ones went to the ICU, etc. That I don't know what to make of it. These findings are really not strong. The numbers are small. The chart review methods are really awful. Overall, they do point to the idea that people with normal GCS do not need a CTA of the neck, but may benefit from CT of the neck to identify these other kinds of things. And they really don't tell us about how many of these people had no neck symptoms, etc. So I really am struggling to have a takeaway from this paper, to be honest. You look like you want to say something. Oh, No.
3: No. Sounds like it's just leaving us hanging. Oh, God,
1: that was bad. So you asked for it. this Commentary
2: This study shows the incidence of supra artery injury is 0% among patients presenting to the ED in France with normal GCS following near hanging, suggesting that CTA may not be necessary in similar patients. Unfortunately, the chart review methods... Small, single-site nature of the study and other analytic choices make these findings weak and insufficient to seriously alter clinical practice at this time.
3: Quick take. Abstract number 19, out-of-hospital ketamine, indications for use, patient outcomes, and associated mortality. This by Fernandez et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine. This one's a quick take. So ketamine is used commonly in the ED due to its high effectiveness, wide therapeutic range, and favorable risk profile, but does this mean it's safe and effective to use it in the pre-hospital setting? This paper is a database review from a large EMS electronic health record provider spanning 1,322 EMS agencies across the United States, which identified 11,291 patients who got out of hospital ketamine. The vast majority of the time, ketamine was used for either trauma-related pain, and that was 49% of the cases, or for behavioral reasons for an agitated patient, and that was 34% of the cases. Hypoxia and hypercapnia occurred in 8.4% and 17.2% of patients, respectively. Unfortunately, of these, you know, almost 12,000 patients, only 2,000 had linked ED records to look at overall mortality, which was one of the reasons that they actually conducted this study. After review of all death cases, which was not a lot, ketamine could not be excluded as a contributing factor in two on-scene deaths, representing 0.02% of those who got out of hospital ketamine, and six in-hospital deaths, representing 5% of in-hospital deaths among the patients that had hospital data available. Like I said, that was only 2,000 of the total 11,000 and change. They give a pretty good amount of detail about the possible ketamine-related deaths. One of the things that was interesting to read in this paper. And truthfully, I get it. I get it why, they're being really conservative, they said ketamine could not be excluded as a contributing factor. But on my review of these cases, where they provide a lot of information, I'm willing to render a not guilty verdict for pretty much all of them. Yeah, most of the inpatient deaths where they're saying "Eh, ketamine might contributed occurred weeks after the ketamine exposure. So I'm willing to give it a pass and say that one time shot of ketamine in the field didn't do it. So this is not a trial, right? Selection bias may have occurred here as they might have screened out high-risk patients who they thought would have a bad reaction to ketamine or weren't good candidates. And their conclusion is a conservative one that more research is needed, but I think this is actually pretty good evidence that in a huge sample of people, it's pretty safe. I only wish they'd provided a little bit more efficacy data.
1: Editors commentary:
3: In this massive EMS-based study, the authors found that ketamine was used for a variety of indications in the pre-hospital setting, most commonly trauma, and for behavioral control, And although there is not a huge focus on efficacy and selection bias may have influenced who actually got it, by my read, this largely seems like a safe practice.
2: Quick take. Abstract number 20, and this is a quick take. It's Evaluation of Emergency Department Pediatric Readiness and Outcomes Among U.S. Trauma Centers. This is by Newgard et al., and it's in JAMA Pediatrics. This is really more of a House of Medicine study, although technically not in our House of Medicine section. So, there's been an ongoing national effort to improve pediatric readiness of emergency departments across the country, something that I think is generally, you know, a good idea and seems prudent. This paper looks at the association between this pediatric readiness and mortality for injured children. The authors used the results from a 2013 readiness project, which obtained readiness scores from most EDs in the nation. But again, in 2013, so you know, a little bit dated at this point. They then subbed out the 832 trauma centers from those hospitals that are in the United States, and those served as the study cohort. Children treated at these facilities who were included in the National Trauma Data Bank were included in the analysis, and the data from that National Trauma Data Bank served as the source of data for the analysis and the patient-level outcomes, etc., from this trial. The authors divided these trauma centers according to their quartile of pediatric readiness and modeled the outcome of mortality as a function of this readiness, along with other observable patient confounders like ISS, age, and other covariates that were available, including some hospital-level stuff. The interesting observation was that mortality in the highest quartile of readiness, so the most ready hospitals, was lower with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.58 than the lowest quartile of readiness. But the readiness effect was not linear. Basically, the first, second, and third quartile, so the lowest three quartiles of readiness, all had similarly high mortality, and only the highest quartile of readiness had that beneficial effect, again, after adjusting for all the confounders. What is this showing us? It certainly does not prove that pediatric readiness causes lower mortality. It may be that really good hospitals are generally better at all sorts of things, including taking care of pediatric cases and including, you know, doing all the stuff that you need administratively to do to be ready. Because if you look at these readiness surveys, a lot of it has to do with filling out the survey, making sure your providers are you know, their pals and all those things are up to date and things of that nature. So it may be that the pediatric readiness is sort of along for the ride and not truly causal. This study also definitely cannot show that improving readiness is associated with improving outcomes. Now, I'm not going to argue that you shouldn't do the kinds of things that are necessary to improve your readiness to take care of sick kids. There's a lot of stuff that hospitals probably ought to be doing, but whether or not investing large amounts of scarce resources into improving pediatric readiness is the best approach to improving the health of the communities that these hospitals serves is simply not answerable at all in this paper it is worth noting that the people who do this pediatric readiness stuff have launched a new survey actually in 2021 to update the list of hospitals and what their readiness is like so while it's still going to be sort of self-reported cross-sectional data, they will have the ability to show a delta readiness. And so some hospitals that were low readiness that have become high readiness, and that might yield some interesting results in terms of their delta mortality.
3: Unless they unless they wait eight or nine years to publish it like they did with this 2013 <laughs> data here.
2: Well, I was going to conclude with, based on the time to publication, it may be a little while. Having said that, you know, this is Craig Newgard, and I emailed him about this paper in particular to talk about some things. I think they're on it now. They sort of like, I think they spent several years, they got this data set of readiness, and they didn't exactly know what to do with it for a while. And now this is not the first paper on this topic. I think that they'll be ready to do some quicker analyses to determine how changes in readiness have affected changes in mortality, which would be a more useful finding in terms of finding that sort of
3: causal inference. Sounds like we need to assess their publication readiness. <laughs> Burn! You gotta let him talk to
2: you that way, guys.
1: this commentary:
2: This study shows a correlation between pediatric readiness and all-cause mortality among injured children in America's trauma centers. Specifically, the centers in the highest quartile of readiness have almost half the mortality of those in the other quartiles. Ongoing research efforts should be made to determine how much of this association is truly caused by pediatric readiness. But in the interim, EDs should probably ensure they are taking reasonable efforts to maximize their readiness to care for pediatric patients.
1: House of Medicine
3: Abstract 21. Gender Distribution in Emergency Medicine Journals Editorial Board Memberships in top ranked Academic Journals This is by Ravioli et al. from the European Journal of Emergency Medicine. So the gender gap or gender disparity in medicine has been well documented, with notable examples in the world of sort of academics being that fewer women hold the title of associate or assistant professor when compared with men of sort of similar years in the academic sphere, and that fewer women were found to be first authors in analysis of high-impact medical journals. Additionally, It has been documented that women have less of a presence as journal editorial board members and as editors in chief of these journals. The authors of this study attempt to map out the magnitude of this difference over time and try to describe how emergency medicine journals compare with those of other specialties. So, this is a cross sectional analysis of editorial board members and editors of chiefs of journals in the categories emergency medicine, medicine general and internal, surgery obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, and orthopedics from 2020 and 2021, they kind of grouped those two together, 2015 and 2010. When the gender of an individual was not obvious by name, so they kind of looked at the names, and if it was very clearly a female, they called that a female. Uh, If it was male, they called it a male. And they do talk about gender being a non-binary issue at this point, but there are only certain things they can do when they're looking back at these things. And they couldn't figure it out. They did an internet search and they really tried to like find that person in a picture and figure out if it's, they were male. They Google stocked them. They did Google stock them a little bit. So in 2020, 2021, there were 31 emergency medicine journals they looked at. I don't even know if I realized there were 31 emergency medicine journals out there, to be honest. 1,800 editorial board members were listed and analyzed. Of these, 17% were women and 81% were men. By year, the percentage of women as editors-in-chief was 9% currently, in this current year, 15% in 2015, and 30% in 2010. And the percentage of women who were editorial board members over the three years that they were looking at, 17%, 19%, and 18%. So basically, they're saying over the last decade, we haven't done much to close this gender gap and fix this gender disparity. Now, How do we compare with other specialties?
2: I'm going to say we're better.
3: Not good. Really? Yeah. Better
2: not as good as orthopedics? But you do like
3: to think of emergency medicine as sort of a progressive specialty. I think we like to think of ourselves that way. So there was a lower percentage of women in editorial boards of emergency medicine journals compared to the top five ranked journals in the category medicine general internal, which was 40% for editors-in-chief and 52% of the editorial board. Surgery, 20% of the editors were women and 20% of the editorial board. OB-GYN, 14% editors-in-chief and 43% editorial board. And Pediatrics, 20% editors-in-chief and 46% of the editorial board. But yes, orthopedics did do worse than us. So you, you could... Mike seems like his whole world is about to be shattered there. <laughs>
2: when you told me that 55% of orthopedic editors-in-chiefs were women, I was about to just no. lose it.
3: Orthopedics has a 0% editor-in-chief mark for women and
2: 18% editorial board. So, But that's you know, like, wow, we're like orthopedists.
3: This is very clear that we've got some work to do here, right? I mean, the authors, they didn't even in the discussion. They didn't even attempt to sort of talk about potential solutions or something like that. It just... This is a very, very complex problem and requires a massive cultural change, but we got to do it. You know, I mean, these numbers are way off yeah. base of what I thought they would be. I really kind of- Because I had,
2: believe that coming into emergency medicine now, it's almost exactly 50-50. I think that's correct. They probably didn't comment on that If If
3: you look at practicing, even currently practicing emergency medicine in this country, it's close to 50-50 yeah. actually. Yeah. And I think we're- decreasing the gap in academics in that a lot more women are going into academics, at least being there. But, this but is rising
2: just, up the ranks and getting onto editorships and stuff were we need way to find, short.
3: We need to find ways to, you know, support women to deal with this gender gap and this huge disparity. This is not acceptable for our specialty. It just isn't. It's embarrassing. We got to do better, guys.
1: Editor's commentary.
3: In this cross-sexual analysis, The authors show that women make up an unacceptably low percentage of emergency medicine journal editorial board members and editors-in-chief, and this has not changed over the last decade. When compared to other big specialties, only orthopedics has a larger gender gap. This is simply not okay, and we need to address this issue head on.
2: Abstract number 22. An Umbrella Review of Effect Size, Bias, and Power Across Meta-Analyses in Emergency Medicine. This is by Parrish et al., and it's in Academic Emergency Medicine. So this is sort of a sobering article reviewing emergency medicine, systematic reviews and meta-analyses that's senior authored by John Ioannidis, who's sort of a world-renowned expert and all that is troubling about the medical literature. I think his most famous paper he published, you know, about probably 20 years ago now, was sort of like, why everything you've read in the medical literature is wrong. I think that's like one of the most cited papers in the history of medical literature, actually.
3: Didn't, didn't we at some point in time have his son do research with us?
2: No, we did not. That's not true? <laughs> that's a, that's an untrue statement. <laughs> See? But it, it, what, wasn't a, it wasn't on Saved by the Bell. I believe that there is
3: If it wasn't on by the Bell, I don't remember. Right? I mean, it was that's not, the problem. This is, this
2: is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. This manuscript represents a colossal effort, and there is just no way to do it justice in a short podcast. The authors actually reviewed all the systematic reviews and meta-analyses published since 1954 that were related to emergency medicine using a very robust search strategy. They identified 431 meta-analyses with just over 3,000 individual study outcomes. Then they performed about... 12,000 analyses of their own, of all these data. I'm not going to go through the way they do it because it's non-standard methodology. It's really interesting, but I will highlight their key findings. Some of the key findings are that, one, effect sizes for emergency medicine interventions, and this is like across the board emergency medicine interventions, were generally small. The mean effect size in terms of an odds ratio was 0.7. Okay, so there's a small effect size. The second point was that effect sizes were not at all stable over time. So, and the way they looked at this quite clever is that when they found a meta analysis that had some effect size, they went into the individual trials and pulled out the earliest trial from that meta analysis and examined the effect size of that trial and then compared it to the overall effect size of the meta-analysis. So like, what was the first published effect size versus the overall meta-analysis effect size? And what they found was consistently the effect size diminished in the meta-analysis compared to the earliest trial. Third, most meta-analyses were composed of such a small number of individual trials that you could not actually assess them for publication bias because you couldn't produce a funnel plot. Usually, to do that, you have to have a bunch of studies of a bunch of different sizes, and then you look for little missing parts and stuff, and that's a funnel plot. In EM meta analyses, very often they were composed of just a couple of studies, so there's no way to know if there was evidence of publication bias. Fourth, the statistical results were generally not robust at all. Most of the statistically significant results were near the 0.05 threshold, but using a more stringent threshold, like 0.01 or 0.005, which has been advocated for by people who do meta-analyses, if you used something like that, less than 10% of those meta-analyses would be positive still. So they're not very statistically stable, if you will. When one looks at studies of lower risk of bias, so this is sort of the fifth point, if you like, just get rid of all the ones that have a lot of bias and just look at the meta-analyses that were at low risk of bias, Almost all the effect sizes diminish and/or disappear. Finally, maybe not finally, but further, the large majority of meta-analyses were grossly underpowered, leading to continued ambiguity, the very thing that a meta-analysis is supposed to resolve, underpowering. So in the end, they found there were only 57 meta-analyses out of that 431 favoring newer experimental treatment with no suggestion of bias. Right. So it's just a small What is that, four dozen, five dozen meta analyses without large bias? And only 12 of those had at least one RCT, and none of them had a mortality impact. So, what that is telling us overall is two major things. One, that though many people think of systematic reviews and meta analyses as the pinnacle of evidence, that's only true if the underlying trials are large and numerous. And in emergency medicine, that's just not the case. So, we should be sort of really aware of the shortcomings of these types of analyses. And two, and this is maybe the most important piece of this whole thing, that when you look at all this metadata from emergency medicine, you find out that there's actually not a high level of evidence supporting most of emergency medicine practice. Like, there's, We're just out there kind of winging it to a great extent. So, like I said, it's a Herculean effort to try to distill all this down and at the end of the day, it leaves us a little bit sobered by the fact that, you know, hey, a lot of those meta-analyses don't produce high-quality data. And what few there are, there just really aren't very many that are governing emergency medicine practice.
3: Yeah, that's a downer. I'm glad is, this wasn't the very last abstract yeah. because it is a bit of a downer. Yeah. My only my only request for this whole thing is Dr. Ioannidis' son. Yes. If you're out
2: there somewhere. And, and you did research with Sanjay or me. Please. I'm like, I have a very clear,
3: at the old hospital, so this was like probably, I'm talking about like 14 years ago or something. I think if you really think about this, Mike, you'll know that there's a hint of truth to what I'm saying. There really is. Came from the East Coast to do some summer work with us. I think you're going to be. Is yeah. it ringing a little bit of a bell right now?
2: Uh, there was someone, in, oh. but they didn't do work with us.
3: No, but there was something. Do,
2: but I don't know if this, there was like somebody ah, out the East Coast. If you're out
3: there listening, Educate.
2: let us know. Yeah. Ed, remind us who you are. <laughs> All right.
1: this Commentary.
2: This is an impressive attempt to characterize the published systematic review and meta-analyses related to emergency medicine. The results demonstrate that there are very few interventions that meet the highest evidence standards, and most of the systematic reviews and meta analyses are significantly flawed and may overstate true treatment effects. Careful review of each systematic review and meta analysis is necessary to ensure correct interpretation of the findings, and we should not assume that this methodology generates the highest form of evidence in its current state in emergency medicine.
3: Abstract number 23. Do patients respond to posted ED wait times? Time series evidence from the implementation of a wait time publication system in Hamilton, Canada. This is by Strobel et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine. So, improving ED wait times has been the major focus of EM administrators' lives for decades. And most proposed solutions are costly and involve the addition of new resources, new personnel, putting up docket triage, like things that take a lot of time effort and money one intervention that has been proposed is to post ed wait times introducing a bit of competition into the market right it's saying hey we have really low wait times you should come here so i could draw patients to your ed and allowing patients to make an informed decision about their need for an ed visit like oh this doesn't seem too minor oh it's pretty busy right now i'm not gonna go wait till a little bit later in the day or check tomorrow Prior research has shown that wait time trackers may reduce wait times by allowing patients to either, like I said, choose lower volume
2: EDs or wait
3: until a lower volume period.
2: The aim of this... We have left without being seen, left before treatment complete. Now we have left before attempting to be seen. Never even came. (laughs) Stayed at home. We want to increase left before coming to be treated. Okay, got it. Sort of, because they may go somewhere else. And that's kind of
3: what they found here. So... The aim of this study was to gain a more nuanced understanding of patients' responses to wait time information and to estimate the presence of associated changes in ED location that was actually used for their complaint. In 2019, the hospital system of Hamilton, Ontario agreed to create a centralized public website that would display ED wait times for the entire city in number form and graphs, and this thing was updated like every 15 minutes. So it was like a real-time how long will I wait if I go to EDX versus EDY? The primary outcome variable was the number of new patients who presented to each ED in the following hour after there was a change in predicted wait time posted online to the centralized website. Overall, after they did this, they started the website, every site actually observed a statistically significant reduction in mean wait times after predictions became publicly available. Although in some cases, although they were statistically significant, clinically, the meaning was a little bit less clear. Like it was like three minutes less of an average wait time at that site. And the most I saw was kind of like 20 minutes less overall over a large period of time. As a point of reference, most of the baseline wait times were about two hours. So that's kind of where they all started.
2: The I've, methods... I'm a little confused. So all of the wait times decreased across every... So, or is it when wait time went up? No
3: was starting very simple. So, they looked at, after they did this in 2019, they looked at pre-post. Across the, all the hospitals. Correct. Across all of them, the wait time decreased. Okay. So, right? there's
2: some temporal trend causing wait times to
3: Well, they may up. have gone outside the system altogether, right? We just don't know. They that left Hamilton, the, Ontario,
2: came to county? They
3: talk about that, <laughs> actually. So, just listen to the whole thing.
2: I'm trying to understand, yeah.
3: So the methods that they used were incredibly involved. Now, you covered that paper earlier, the seconds is brain thing or whatever, where they assumed mm-hmm. everything was like, you know, a linear model would fix it. This is the Annals of Emergency Medicine, right? So they had like 1 million models to look at linear, non-linear, controlling for fixed effects. They used something called elasticities mm-hmm. that would describe the impact of change in wait times of one minute. Mm-hmm. They had box plots, polynomial plots. This was like, If you're a methods person, this is the paper for you. It was very intense with a lot of information given. Three major conclusions I took home from sort of sifting through all this. Both linear and nonlinear associations suggested that higher wait times at a site were generally associated with fewer patients presenting to that site within the next hour after wait times went up. Both linear and nonlinear associations suggested that higher wait times at a site were generally associated with patients presenting more frequently to other sites in Hamilton within the next hour. Non-linear models showed that a 60-minute increase in wait time was associated with 10% fewer patients presenting within the next hour. Linear associations between wait time and patient volume were small in magnitude, but non-linear associations suggested that at very high wait times, there may have been a larger change in patient volume, kind of like a threshold effect, right? Once you got to like, you know, the wait
2: time's 15 minutes versus 18 minutes. We don't care. That's
3: Once exactly it hits four right.
2: hours, we're like, that's it. I'm not coming in for my toe sprain.
3: That's exactly right. So there's some limitations here. We don't know how many people were exposed to these time estimates, right? They were on a website. They weren't like posted at the front door in a sign or something like that. And it's possible that people went to an ED outside of Hamilton. They sort of describe the local area in a map, and they say kind of depending on where you live, There may be an ED that's actually not in Hamilton, Ontario, that's less than 20 minutes away that you could go to if you chose to do that based on what you saw in the wait times. But you know, people talk about this a lot, decreasing ED wait times. And I think this is kind of interesting real-world data that seemed to work.
1: Editus commentary.
3: In this observational study from Hamilton, Canada, the authors found that after implementing a wait time website, patient volumes went down within an hour of increased posted wait times at that ED and went up at surrounding ED. Although the overall impact was small, nonlinear analysis suggested that the impact may have been larger when wait times were more extreme. This is food for thought for anyone focused on improving wait time at your ED as the wait times overall did decrease at all sites.
2: Quick take Abstract number 24, and this is sort of a quick take. We'll see how it goes. It's National Evaluation of Surgical Resident Grit and the Association with Wellness Outcomes by Hewitt et al., and it's in JAMA Surgery. And it's an interesting study centering on the topic of wellness and burnout, but looking at it from the perspective of the personality trait of grit. And for the record, grit is defined as roughly defined. As the perseverance and passion for long-term goals, it's previously been shown to be associated with a lot of good outcomes, including high educational achievement, finishing really hard programs like the U.S. Military Academy, and improved resiliency overall. Here, the authors ask if grit in surgical residents is associated with burnout, thoughts of attrition, meaning leaving their program, and even suicidality. The study is an anonymous cross-sectional voluntary survey of all categorical surgical residents taking the American Board of Surgery in-training examination, their in-service exam. Participants who took that exam were asked to fill out the eight-item GRIT-S survey, as well as the Maslach burnout inventory and some less well-validated questions about thinking of leaving their respective programs and suicidal thoughts. And then finally, some demographics, etc. Now, get this: of the 8,300 surgical residents who took the AB site—that's their exam—in 2018, 99.3 took the survey.
3: 99.3 percent. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm like, how right. did they? 0, 0.3.
2: He chopped his arm off. No, can you believe that? That's, that's grit. That's Chop grit. Your arm off. <laughs> so and you keep going in surgical <laughs>
3: residency. Right.
2: So 99 percent
3: so of their them response took rate
2: was almost 100 percent. Almost 100 percent. It must not have seemed super voluntary in yeah. that context. Okay, what are the key results? The key result was that grit, as measured by this eight-item survey, was strongly inversely correlated with both burnout and thoughts of attrition and suicidality. Grit scores, on the other hand, were very stable according to years of training, although there was a slight dip in years two and three, and these were five-year programs. So. You start out with high grit, it went down a little bit, it looked like, and then came back up a little bit, but it was really fairly stable across the years. Grit was a little higher in women residents and residents who had life partners, but otherwise, you know, their grit scores were all over the map and it wasn't that associated with demographic features. Now, here's the thing. If grit is so good and so beneficial and preventive of, you know, burnout and suicidality and attrition and all that kind of stuff, and it's a personality trait. Doesn't it seem like we should be screening for this at interviews?
3: Oh, I was about to ask that. Was, is grit something you can sort of change well, or modify yeah. over time because otherwise you could flip that and say the focus should be sort of increasing so, grit or you know whatever. So it's a great it question.
2: Is. It's considered a personality trait. That's how it's viewed. And therefore, it shouldn't be highly modifiable because personality traits are not supposed to be highly modifiable. Having said that, Of course, you know, you're not really born with grit, right? It's developed and there's some natural propensity towards it.
3: Clint Eastwood. Yeah. True grit.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's right, that there maybe there should be some effort towards, you know, building up grit if that's a thing or it's corollary, which seems to be sort of resiliency and stuff like that. But just for the record, the authors spend most of their discussion, it's really weird, they spend most of their discussion arguing that we should not be screening for grit in residency applications. And they say, it's really interesting because they basically say, you know, well, the scale's not that good and it's not really validated across, you know, different populations and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, but you why did you, it. Why did you yeah, you used it. Anymore? I didn't use it. You guys did it. But finally, they conclude with the one that I sort of agree with, which is that, well, we don't know how well grit associates with being a good doctor. Right. So it might be that, or being a good person or human. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, I don't, you know, if you're not a good person, but you're a good doctor, I guess it doesn't matter to a residency training program. But yeah, so it doesn't say like whether you end up as a good surgeon or good physician overall. It just tells you that you're likely to complete the program and suffer enormous suicidality or burnout. Interesting stuff. And again, it's not clear if you can train up grit. Still seems like if choosing between two potential trainees, one who has high grit and one who doesn't, you'd probably select the high grit one, but I'll sidestep that one. Of course the main interventions we should do aren't about increasing your grit but you know making medical training and the practice of medicine more humane and more accessible to normal humans not just those who like persevere despite being repeatedly stabbed in the eyeball but you know we're just a long way away off from that
1: Edith's commentary
2: This impressive cross-sectional study of surgical residents shows that the personality trait, grit, is strongly and inversely related to burnout, thoughts of leaving the training program, and suicidality. It remains to be seen if training up grit would further reduce these important outcomes. <laughs>
5: Welcome EMA listeners. I am very excited to welcome our special guest for October, Aaron Skolnick. I'm Jess Monis, and I may be a little biased, but I think he has a lot to offer. He's boarded in emergency medicine, toxicology, addiction medicine, critical care, and neurocritical care, a bit of an underachiever if you ask me. Aaron and I have lectured together on the EMA circuit, and in full disclosure, we spend a lot of time together. We work together, we live together, we have two great kids together, and we love to talk a little nerdy. Aaron, welcome to the EMA Ultra Summary.
6: Thanks, Jess. It's great to be here and get a chance to do this with you. Looks like my mom was right, and I married up. Are you ready to do this?
5: Oh, I am ready. Let's go. Let's do this. Paper number one. Risk of traumatic brain injuries in infants younger than three months with minor blunt head trauma. PCARN has helped us spare CT scans in kids with minor head injuries but this can be challenging in infants. The authors did a secondary analysis of the PCARN data, looking specifically at children under three months of age to see how well it worked. There are about 1,000 babies, half of whom had CTs. Out of the infants who met low-risk criteria, only one had a clinically important TBI, but 5% had a TBI on CT, and about 4.5% had a skull fracture. This was way lower than the high-risk group, but there were still misses. This doesn't mean we need to scan all babies, but it does mean we have to be cautious. Even if an infant looks well to us, if the parent says they aren't acting normally, take it seriously.
6: Paper number two hypothermia versus normothermia after out of hospital cardiac arrest. We all know that having a fever really hurts you when you have a brain injury. What's been the subject of ongoing debate is whether after resuscitation from an out of hospital cardiac arrest, You need to be kept cold or just kept normal to protect you from that bad neurologic outcome. In this study, about 1,900 comatose people with a presumed cardiac etiology of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were randomized to hypothermia at 33 degrees Celsius versus normothermia at less than 37.5 degrees Celsius. What did they find? There was no difference in functional outcome or death from any cause at six months. This is the largest and arguably best-done study on this subject, and I think this means we can put therapeutic hypothermia for out-of-hospital arrest on ice, at least for now.
5: I see what you did there. Mm, thanks. Yeah, I liked it. All right. Paper number three, engagement of the median glassoepiglottic fold and laryngeal view during emergency department intubation. This paper sought to determine if engaging the glassoepiglottic fold, aka the midline molecular fold, would improve intubation view. This is the frenulum-like mucosal structure in the vallecula that connects the tongue to the epiglottis. You can't see it on DL since it's obscured by the blade, but you can see it on video laryngoscopy. They determined that about 10% of the cases had a better view when this fold was engaged, but what does that mean? There is no clinically relevant data included in the paper, so does this translate to higher intubation success rates? My guess, probably not. I think it's cool to know about, and I'll definitely look for it next time, but I'm not sure it will make a difference.
6: You know, I've seen that thing, and when I've looked at it, I've never thought, should I engage with you? <laughs> I, I'm going to rethink that. I am I might try to engage it next time. Let's just see what happens.
5: All right, I'm going to look for it too.
6: Paper number four, Effective Rapid Respiratory Virus Testing on Antibiotic Prescribing Among Children Presenting to the Emergency Department with Acute Respiratory Illness, a Randomized Clinical Trial. These authors conducted an RCT pre-COVID to determine if a respiratory pathogen panel including the usual viral suspects plus some atypicals, would reduce antibiotic prescribing. Around 900 kids with a mean age of 24 months were included. They were swabbed before being seen, and in the intervention group, results were given to the patient and provider. 85% of the time, the panel was positive for something, mostly viruses. Now, there were some methods problems here, but the bottom line is that there was more antibiotic prescribing in the intervention group. How is this possible? Well, since in little kids, it's almost always a virus, Providers might have been shaken up by a negative result. Mike suggested using the panel only when antibiotics are already being strongly considered and then using a positive viral test to avoid that script. Hopefully, we can give that strategy a try.
5: I found this absolutely fascinating. Viral panels increased antibiotic prescriptions. Like, that's so counterintuitive to me, but it's fascinating to kind of see, you know, or just think about how, you know, a clinician's mind can work.
6: It's another case of an imperfect test generating a lot of resource utilization.
5: Yep. Paper number five. Prevalence of incidentally detected signs of intracranial hypertension on magnetic resonance imaging and their association with papilledema. Does finding a sign of intracranial hypertension on MRI correlate to papilledema? There were about 300 patients, one quarter of which had an MRI for neoplasm, and only 10% had it for a headache or disorders of intracranial pressure. Half the patients had at least one sign of intracranial hypertension. Only 2.8% of patients with one sign had papilledema, whereas 40% had it with four signs. Patients with papilledema tended to have a higher BMI and a history of idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So, what do I do with this information? If you have a patient with one incidental finding of elevated pressure and you were not worried about intracranial hypertension, it's probably okay to refer for an outpatient workup. But if you have a patient with four signs, I'd pursue it now.
6: You know, I'm always amazed. We give a lot of flack to radiology as a specialty, but I'm always amazed at the stuff they come up with from looking at images, right? Like, does the patient have a tattoo on his left buttock? I don't know. Clinical correlation will happen now.
5: Well, I find it amazing. And I always, uh, you know, kind of joke around that radiology is, you know, half science, half voodoo. So, uh, you know, (laughs) maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know.
6: All right. Paper number six. Electrocardiographic diagnosis of acute coronary occlusion, myocardial infarction, and ventricular pace rhythm using the modified Scarboza criteria. This is a multi centered retrospective observational study that applied the Scarboza and modified Scarboza criteria to V pace patients with ACS symptoms that fell into one of three groups those with occlusive MI, those with non occlusive MI who underwent coronary angiography, and a group deemed not to have occlusive MI but who never went to cath. The key result here is that use of the modified Scarboza criteria increased the sensitivity for occlusive MI without sacrificing a lot of specificity compared to the original criteria. Some methodological issues, especially the choice of the control group without angiography, but we should all familiarize ourselves with both of these criteria when we're looking for MI in VPACE patients.
5: Okay, now I just need to say something about the study name, because Mike had an issue with it, and I know he kind of referred to it as a little arrogant, but I actually want to give the authors some major props. So it's the paced electrocardiogram requiring fast-emergent coronary therapy study, a.k.a. the perfect study. Wow. Seriously, just wow. Every letter corresponds to a word. No fillers. Well done.
6: You know what? I actually intentionally didn't mention that because I didn't want to encourage them. But thanks (laughs) thanks for nothing, Jess.
5: Yeah, I'm sorry. I have to say something. All right. Paper number seven. A randomized controlled trial of ibuprofen versus ketorolac versus diclofenac for acute non-radicular low back pain. This double-blind RCT randomized patients to receive either a five-day supply of 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, 10 milligrams of Ketorolac, or 50 milligrams of Diclofenac to see which worked better. They found that improvement in a disability score, their primary outcome, was slightly higher with Ketorolac, but not statistically significant. There were 10 to 20% more patients with mild or no pain on day five in the Ketorolac group and GI irritation was also lower with them. The study was stopped short due to COVID, and there were limitations such as no data on renal function, so I wouldn't toss out all the other NSAIDs just yet, but it's certainly worth further investigation. Want to throw acetaminophen into the mix? Check out the MRAP segment from July 2018 on APAP versus Combo Therapy.
6: Paper number 8. Healthy life-year costs of treatment speed from arrival to endovascular thrombectomy in patients with ischemic stroke a meta-analysis of individual patient data from seven randomized clinical trials. At issue here is that the last known well time is imprecise and might underestimate the benefits of shorter times to endovascular therapy. These authors analyzed observational patient-level data from the Hermes Collaborative, or as my wife says, the Hermes Collaborative, which includes many RCTs of endovascular therapy. Then they modeled functional outcomes based on process measures. They found an association between longer in-house processes like door-to-perfusion And disability adjusted life years, such that each second of delay in door to perfusion was associated with 2.4 hours of quality life lost. There was no benefit based on last known well time. Though the methods here might be imperfect, if we can expedite our stroke care without hurting the care of other ED patients, we should do so.
5: All right, sounds good. Paper number nine comparing real time and intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitoring in adults with type 1 diabetes, alert 1. A six month prospective multi center randomized control trial. Patients with type 1 diabetes are moving toward continuous glucose monitoring with subcutaneous sensors. Patients can either assess glucose levels intermittently on demand or real time with continuous levels reported every one to five minutes through a receiver, smartwatch, or phone. This paper compared the two methods and found that real time continuous users spent more time in proper glucose range, had lower hemoglobin A1c levels fewer severe hypoglycemic events, and lower fear of hypoglycemia. Skin reactions were more common with the on-demand sensor and bleeding more common after real-time sensor insertion. I predict we will be seeing more and more patients showing up with real-time continuous monitors, and it's helpful to know what's out there.
6: Yeah, this is the future, right? I mean, in the future when you're low, your electric car will just drive you straight to the ED and drop you off and check you in.
5: (laughs) Right, and alert the ED that you're coming. Yeah.
6: All right, paper number 10. Use of high-sensitivity cardiac troponin in patients with kidney impairment, a randomized clinical trial. This is a secondary analysis of the high-stakes trial, which included 48,000 patients and examined what happened when institutions changed from conventional to high-sensitivity troponins. Spoiler alert, patients reclassified to positive by high-sensitivity tests had no difference in MI or cardiac death at one year. In the subset of patients examined here with renal dysfunction, the worse the kidneys got, the more positive high-sensitivity troponins there were. In patients with GFRs less than 30, for example, two-thirds had positive troponins. And in this study, even though one in two patients with kidney dysfunction had a positive trope, those positives were less likely to be due to an MI, and there was still no difference in the incidence of MI or cardiac death at one year.
5: You know, I think that this is also important to think about, you know, when your hospital is moving to high-sensitivity troponins, right? It's not just something you want to send on all your weak and dizzy patients because you're going to get a lot of positives that you're not going to know what to do with. So I think this kind of points out how many positives you can get, especially with renal impairment.
6: Yeah. And I think, you know, a positive troponin never means something good, but it just, (laughs) you know, it's hard to know what to do with it in the case where the bad thing that it means is not totally clear.
5: Right. You go fishing, you will find fish. That's right. All right. Paper 11. Efficacy and Safety of Non-Antibiotic Outpatient Treatment in Mild Acute Diverticulitis, DYNAMO Study, a multi-center, randomized, open-label, non-inferiority trial. Recent studies have shown no benefit of antibiotics in the treatment of acute, uncomplicated diverticulitis. The MRAP 2020 May Snack gets into it, and we've talked about it quite a few times in the ultra-summary. In fact, the most recent guidelines from the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons gave a 1A recommendation that select patients can be treated without them. The difference with this RCT is that patients not given antibiotics were actually sent home, whereas prior studies observed them in the hospital. Not surprisingly, non-antibiotic outpatient treatment was found to be non-inferior. Now, before we universally adapt this practice change, we will need a lot of buy-in from our colleagues and consulting services, and we are not there yet.
6: Yeah, this just makes me more and more glad that I didn't choose to become a surgeon, right? Because they train for so long, and it's such a grueling training, and they just keep talking themselves out of doing more and more surgery. Paper number 12, Clinical Impact of High-Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin T Implementation in the Community. This is a retrospective before and after study examining identification of MIs and resource utilization as the transition was made to fifth-generation high-sensitivity troponins. The primary endpoint was the incidence of positive troponins adjudicated to represent acute MI. Of those 3,500 patients in the study, the share with elevated troponins increased from 15% to almost half, but the increase in a type 1 MI, although significant, was little more than 1%. There was a similarly small increase in cardiac caths. Overall, the total share of patients discharged from the ED and length of stay were the same before and after the adoption of high-sensitivity troponin. So this study somewhat allays the fears of rampant misuse of resources and EDs clogged up with troponin-positive patients lining the hallways, but whether high-sensitivity troponin results will benefit patient outcomes in real-world use remains to be seen.
5: Paper 13, Delivery Room Interventions for Hypothermia in Preterm Neonates, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. Now, Aaron, neonatal hypothermia is bad, with increased risk of mortality, particularly in preemies. In ideal conditions, the room is toasty and the baby is placed in a warmer, but when a preterm infant pops out in the ED, what can we do? Now, Aaron, I don't know about you, my first thing is panic, but then after that, I think we can kind of assess the situation. So this paper compared nine thermal care interventions, including skin-to-skin, variations of a plastic bag, wrap, or head cap, plus-minus thermal mattress, heated air, or incubator. Most of the interventions were associated with higher core body temperatures. So, if you find yourself in this situation, take the baby, don't clean them off, just wrap them in plastic, obviously not their face, try to keep it warm, and then get it out of your ED.
6: I agree with all of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Paper number 14, Risk Factors and Outcomes After a Brief Resolved Unexplained Event, a Multi-Center Study, aka There's Trouble, a Brui. This retrospective <laughs> study looked at the epidemiology of breweries by via chart review. Of more than 2,000 kids with breweries, 87% were classified as high-risk by AAP criteria. These include age less than 60 days and CPR done by a trained person, among other things. Around two-thirds were admitted, but a serious diagnosis was identified only in 4%. The AAP high-risk criteria had a negative predictive value of 97%, but a positive predictive value of only 4%. Great for sending low-risk kids home, not so great for avoiding admissions and workups. Which breweries were more likely to be serious? History of prior event, duration longer than a minute, altered level of consciousness, and abnormal medical history. So changing the name from the artist formerly known as Alti to Bruy hasn't changed much else. Most of these kids will have a high-risk feature compelling admission, but very few of them will turn out to have a serious cause.
5: I see. So an Alti by any other name still gets admitted. Mm. All right, paper 15. Pilot randomized controlled trial of virtual reality versus standard of care during pediatric laceration repair. Kids in this study, age 6 to 16, who had their lax repaired were either given a low cost virtual reality device with a roller coaster app or standard of care, which could have been music, television, a smartphone, or a tablet. Pain and anxiety measured post procedure were similar between groups. The authors claim that the patients liked the VR system more but their table seems to suggest otherwise. The average age of the kid was 10, so they're pretty savvy at this point. Maybe if it was like some zombie-killing VR game, it would have ranked higher. I don't know.
6: Definitely would have ranked higher with our children if it involved killing zombies.
5: Yes, please don't give away our secrets.
6: Paper number 16. Effects of intravenous eptinezumab versus placebo on headache pain and most bothersome symptom when initiated during a migraine attack. A randomized clinical trial. Eptinezumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody that binds to calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP, ligand, and blocks its binding to its receptor. It's administered via a 30-minute IV infusion every three months as chronic migraine prophylaxis. Well, this study tested eptinezumab as an abortive therapy for acute migraine in patients naive to the drug. At two hours, almost a quarter of the drug group had resolution versus 12% for placebo. The average time to resolution was four hours for eptinezumab. Versus nine hours for a placebo. With a modest effect that requires hours, a 30-minute IV infusion, and a thousand bucks a dose, it's nice to know about, but I don't think it's ready for ED prime time yet.
5: Also, really impressed with that consistent pronunciation of that medication, and I'm glad you had to do it.
6: Thank you. It's wrong, but consistency counts.
5: <laughs> okay. Paper 17. Treatment of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Miss c hit the scene after kids started getting COVID. It's rare, but life-threatening, and we're not exactly sure how to treat it. This New England Journal of Medicine paper sourced data from 34 countries through a web-based interface collecting information on 614 children with suspected Miss c 490 of whom met the WHO criteria. They compared IVIG to IVIG plus glucocorticoids to glucocorticoids alone. The reduction in disease severity and time to that reduction was similar between groups. There were definitely limitations here, including the concern that mis overlaps with Kawasaki's disease and that sicker patients get more stuff, but overall, the authors conclude that they found no evidence of differences in outcomes.
6: Paper number 18. Should CT angiography of the supra-aortic arteries be performed systematically following attempted suicide by hanging? This is a single-center retrospective chart review and rather a dark one, I might add, looking at the incidence of arterial injury in near-hanging patients. The authors wanted to know how many patients had a supra-aortic vascular injury, and of those, how many had a normal exam. However, they took a small study and made it even smaller by excluding about a third of the patients who didn't get a CTA, and then having a weird direct-to-ICU pathway for about half the remainder. Almost all the patients left in the ED group had a GCS of 15, and not one had a vascular injury. Around 10% had a fracture at either the thyroid cartilage or the hyoid bone, and none had intracranial pathology. But because of this study's limitations, we don't really know whether asymptomatic near-hanging patients in the ED need imaging at all.
5: All right. Well, paper 19, Out-of-Hospital Ketamine, Indications for Use, Patient Outcomes, and Associated Mortality. This database study evaluated over 11,000 patients who received out-of-hospital ketamine, about half got it for trauma, and a third for behavioral issues. Following administration, 8.5% had hypoxia and 17% had hypercapnia. Ketamine could not be excluded as a contributing factor in two of the on-scene deaths and six of the in-house cases for an overall mortality rate of 0.02% and 0.3% respectively. The problem with the on-scene deaths is that the patients became combative, but we don't know why. In one, there was reported methamphetamine use, and in the other, it occurred after significant trauma. With no autopsy data, it's impossible to pinpoint the exact cause. Sanjay also questions the hospital deaths. Whatever the case, these are super low numbers, and out-of-hospital ketamine is probably fine.
6: Yeah, you know, as a tox person, I have never loved the which blow dart is best for the angry elephant kind of study. But I will say that it seems like ketamine is pretty safe. Paper number 20. Evaluation of Emergency Department Pediatric Readiness and Outcomes Among U.S. Trauma Centers. This paper looked at the 832 ED trauma centers included in the National Pediatric Readiness Project in 2013. They then modeled their pediatric mortality as a function of their pediatric readiness score, basically how ready were you to take care of kids. Mortality in centers in the highest quartile of pediatric readiness was almost half that of the others, but the mortality was similar among the other quartiles. Although this study doesn't show that increasing pediatric readiness is linearly associated with improved outcomes, I still agree with the author's basic point. We should support national efforts to increase pediatric readiness and trauma EDs that care for kids.
5: Absolutely. Paper 21. Gender Distribution in Emergency Medicine Journals, Editorial Board Memberships, in Top-Ranked Academic Journals There is no question that there is a gender gap in academic medicine, but exactly how big is this gap? And where does emergency medicine fit in? The authors of this paper evaluated the gender makeup of the editorial boards and editors in chief of EM journals and compared them to medicine, surgery, OBGYN, PEDS, and ortho. So, Aaron, where do you think EM fell in?
6: I assume we are vastly superior to all of the other specialties you have mentioned.
5: You know what? I would also think so, but sadly, it did not pan out. Mm. The only one worse than emergency medicine was ortho. Ortho, Aaron. Ortho. That hurts. Yeah. They also looked at EM over time, assessing 2010, 2015, and the present with no statistically significant change, meaning things have not improved. This is obviously a complex, multifaceted issue, but we have to do better. True. At least better than ortho. All
6: right, that's fair. Paper number 22, an umbrella review of effect size, bias, and power across meta-analyses in emergency medicine. This is a massive statistical undertaking, examining all the systematic reviews and meta-analyses pertaining to emergency medicine over the last 30 plus years. Now, you might remember that systematic reviews and meta-analyses sit at the top of the traditional evidence pyramid, but the problem is the same as with any computer. Garbage in equals garbage out. There's a lot of hardcore biostats in this paper, but the bottom line is this. Effect sizes were small. Bias was common. Power was usually low. Take your systematic reviews and meta-analyses with a grain of salt. They are likely to be composed largely of small, underpowered studies that may be biased and have a small effect size. We need to do more as a specialty to advance the quality of EM research if we want to have a true evidence-based practice.
5: Yeah, I think this paper is so important because we take these meta-analyses and we hold them almost like some gold standard but I think it's really important, as you said, garbage in, garbage out. We need to know what papers they're assessing. Paper 23, do patients respond to posted emergency department wait times, time series evidence from the implementation of a wait time publication system in Hamilton, Canada? A short ED wait time is the holy grail of emergency medicine. So will making wait times known to the public help decrease them? In 2019, Hamilton, Ontario created a centralized website with this information available, and the authors looked at pre and post data to see if it made a difference at their hospitals. They found that a 60 minute increase in ED wait time was associated with 10% fewer patients presenting there over the next hour. That feels about right. There's a lot we don't know here, such as did these patients actually look at the website, or did they go to a hospital outside of the city? Personally, all things being equal, unless I'm exsanguinating, I would definitely go where the wait was the shortest.
6: Me too. And I'm also not going to tell Ken Milne that we were Googling Hamilton, Ontario when we prepared this.
5: Yeah, it's surprisingly, what did they say? It was like three and a half million people or something M- Much
6: larger than expected for a place I'd never heard of. <laughs> okay. Paper number 24.
5: We love you, Canada. We love you. We love, we
6: love you, you, Canada. We love you, Ken. Paper number 24, National Evaluation of Surgical Resident Grit and the Association with Wellness Outcomes. This is kind of a quirky one. This study looked at grit, which is defined as perseverance and passion for long-term goals in surgical residents. This survey-based research looked at the association between resident grit and burnout, thoughts of program attrition, and suicidal thoughts. Grit scores were slightly higher in women, trainees in their fourth or fifth year, and married residents. More grittier was more better, as grit scores were inversely correlated with burnout, job dissatisfaction, and thoughts of attrition or suicide. Remaining questions here? Does this association hold true for our specialty? Should we be screening for grittiness in EM residents? Are grittier doctors better clinicians? I know some grittier doctors that would tell you, yes, definitely true. (laughs) And can grit be taught? Still unanswered.
5: All right. Well, Aaron, we did it. October ultra-summary nailed. Thanks again for joining us. Always appreciate your expertise. And EMA listeners, see you next month.
6: Thanks a lot, Jess. It was my pleasure.
1: Every it's time to talk a little nerdy, talk a little nerdy with Ken Milne.
4: Welcome to the October time to talk a little nerdy. This is Swami and here as always, the Kirk to my bones, Dr. Ken Milne. Ready to beam up, my friend. And Ken, the uh, listeners don't know, but we just had a little discussion about who should be Kirk and who should be Bones and we hashed it out. I'm clearly the bones to your Kirk, not the other way around.
0: I do like Captain Kirk, yes.
4: All right. So, Ken, last month we chatted about subgroup analyses and we started to branch into this idea of study replication. For a bit of review, subgroup analyses should be thought of as hypothesis generating. These hypotheses then need to be tested as the primary outcomes of subsequent studies to find out if there's actually something there. Ken, let's start with a very simple question. How often does that get done?
0: Well, there's one study that reported it happened about one third of the time where subgroup results are investigated. And the number of times that the actual original quote significant finding was confirmed was a nice big goose egg, my friend, 0% of the time.
4: Well, I'm not completely shocked. I'm a little surprised it's zero, but I'm not completely shocked by this. The other piece within that last segment that we touched on is the fact that a study will come out with a positive finding that gets a lot of attention. It can even lead to a change in the way that we work up or treat disease. It can change guidelines. But is it enough for us to see a single study with a positive outcome that changes our trajectory?
0: Well, it's not enough for me, Swami, and we need to get away from this one and done mentality. There are usually many limitations to a single trial. Simple stuff like external validity. Does it apply to your patient population? And then, of course, the idea of making a type 1 error. And that's when we falsely reject the null hypothesis of no superiority and accept an alternative hypothesis. Often it is to accept that a treatment is superior to, let's say, a placebo or an active control. There can also be many biases identified in the post-publication peer review process That can threaten the validity of the results, the conclusions, and the interpretation of the study itself.
4: And all of that is why replication is so important. Take the study, do it again, and see what you get. See if you get the same results, or at least close to the same results. How often do studies with big, important findings get replicated?
0: (laughs) Not often enough. Personally, I think it should be close to 100%. However, there is a study published in JAMA. And they looked at 45 highly cited original clinical research studies that claim the intervention was effective. Only 20 of those 45, so 44% were replicated.
4: That is a little bit smaller of a number than, than, again, we would like to see. You sent a number of articles on this topic, this topic of replication. And in one of those articles that you sent, they mentioned that some biotech and pharmaceutical companies have attempted to replicate data from studies as well. What did they find?
0: Well, there was this U.S. biotech company called Amgen, and they tried to replicate just over 50 high-impact cancer research studies. They were only able to replicate just over 10%. It was actually 11%. Six out of 53 studies they were able to replicate. And then the German pharmaceutical company Bayer conducted a similar trial, trying to replicate various studies. Their success rate was better than Amgen, but still only able to replicate just over a third of the studies. And this is in part what informs my skepticism of practices where we have only one RCT, one randomized control trial, claiming benefit and no replication studies. And as an example, think of TPA for stroke. The 1995 NINDS trial looked at treating patients in under 3 hours after symptom onset. Never been replicated. Same thing for ECAS-3 that looked at the 3-4.5 to hour window. Advocates of TPA say that it would be unethical to do another RCT. But the evidence shows that when replication studies are performed, far less than 50% get confirmed that would suggest that equipoise might not exist and it would be unethical not to do a replication study. We certainly have good data on the harms of giving lytics to patients, i.e. bleeding.
4: So we can see here then that we don't get replication very often. When we attempt replication, which again, isn't that often, it's not successful most of the time. And so when we see these results, we get swayed by them pretty easily, but we really should take them with a grain of salt and say, okay, that's really great. What we really need, though, is to replicate those findings and make sure that they actually hold up. And let's get into some of the reasons why that replication is so important and also why we see it so infrequently done. We have, I think, six different reasons why replication is important, why we don't see it done very often. We'll start with number one. It's our interpretation of statistical significance, and that creates problems.
0: Yes, and we've talked about this before on previous episodes. The whole concept of a p value less than 0.05, meaning something significant, is an overinterpretation. We need to consider the magnitude of the effect, that's important, the clinical impact, that's important, and the biases in the study that threaten its validity. These are just a few problems of claiming victory, spiking the ball, high fiving everybody when your p value comes in at less than 0.05. And there are initiatives to push that number down by an order of magnitude to 0.005. And that's by an organization called Stanford Metrics Institute. They're trying to raise the bar and make biomedical research more reliable.
4: So if we push that number lower, that p-value lower, I guess it makes it more likely that our findings are real, that they are significant, that they actually mean something. And that would be important. Whether that change happens or not, you and I can't really affect. Let's get to our second reason that we think replication doesn't happen nearly as much as it should, which is that there are certain incentives in place that bias what we see published. And this goes along with the pressure to publish.
0: Ah, yes. The publish or perish paradigm of academia. To advance in the university hierarchy from assistant to associate to full professor You need publications on your CV. And to get published in academic journals, the decision editors are looking for significant findings, positive results. They are less interested in a study that failed to demonstrate something. To support this statement, a study that took random samples of about a thousand Medline abstracts between 1990 and 2015, they looked at how many times the authors reported significant p-values in their abstracts of this 1,000 MEDLINE abstracts. And the result was 96% of the time, the abstracts showed a significant p-value. And this illustrates this bias that exists in medical publication of publishing positive findings.
4: And that bridges really nicely into our third point. Our third point could almost be 2A or 2A and 2B here, and that's publication bias or selective reporting or the fact that negative studies often go unpublished.
0: Yeah, that's right. About half of all clinical studies are never published, according to a study that searched the trial registry site, clinicaltrials.gov. This ties back to the issue of positive findings get published. The idea that, quote, null is dull results in less negative trials getting published. And this is terrible on multiple levels. If patients are involved in a clinical trial, the findings should be published. They have volunteered their time, but more importantly, their body to advance medical science. Even if it's on an online registry site that provides the raw data for others to review. I think we have an ethical obligation to make the information available to other researchers and clinicians so they can make better decisions about patient
4: care. This idea that studies that are negative don't get published is really a problem because we see this then really biased picture of the data that's out there. So let's say, you know, you took the NIN study, for example, there might be five or six other trials that did the same thing. That were negative that never got published and that would really sway how we think about that treatment and how we think about replication being necessary now i'm not saying that that actually exists for nins but you can imagine that there could be that data out there or for a number of other things that we do and so the clinician deserves to have that information and of course more importantly the patient deserves that that information exists in the literature for us to look at to really guide our treatment and management the fact that a lot of these data sets that don't turn out the way that we expect them to can't get published end up in, you know, a file cabinet somewhere is really a huge problem. And that brings us, Ken, to number four, which is that the peer review system for articles is broken.
0: Yes, the emperor has no clothes, Swami. And I, I cringe when someone claims something to be, quote, true. And of course, when I'm using the word true, that's the best point estimate of an observed effect size, but people claiming something to be true because it was published in a peer-reviewed journal. All that means is it was published in a peer-reviewed journal. The information still needs to be critically appraised for its validity. This is what post-publication peer review is about and is a fundamental part of science. But you get what you pay for and peer review is unpaid work. The currency used in the peer review process is academic cred that you get to put on your CV, that you've been reviewing journal articles. However, the quality of the work is highly variable. We were warned about this in 2014, that the volume of reviews required was burning out the peer review pool of people. And I suspect that this has gotten worse with the tsunami Of COVID 19 papers published since March 2020. And we've known about this problem
4: with peer review for more than 20 years. And that brings us to our fifth issue that we need to bring up, which is about fraud and p hacking and how these really are major issues in publishing.
0: Well, fraud, while rare, still does happen and, and it can have a devastating long term impact. A classic example is that of Andrew Wakefield and the famously retracted Lancet article from 1998. This is the study that incorrectly claimed a connection between the MMR vaccine and autism. And it led to a rise in vaccine hesitancy, which we're seeing today, and encouraged the anti-vaccination movement. Now, p-hacking, this is more common. This is when you either set up the statistical analysis to increase the chance of finding something With a p-value of less than 0.05 you collect data until you reach that value or you retrospectively torture your data looking for that magic number and there's evidence to support this position showing an increased frequency of published results with a p-value that just squeaks under that 0.05 number
4: i really think these are both important issues for us to consider and you're right fraud is not common but it's there, and we need to be hunting and and picking it out. Some of that is what peer review is for. But like you said, the peer review process has its own issues. P-hacking, I agree with you, is much more common because it doesn't seem to be dishonest. But in honesty, it is. It really is a dishonest practice. And while it's not fraud necessarily, it's, it's pretty close. It is definitely trying to mislead the people who are looking at it, although maybe the researchers have convinced themselves that it's not really all that misleading. That brings us to number six, Ken data and methods are not often openly shared. And this one really particularly chafes me because as an evidence-based medicine person reading, you really do want to see the data and the methods.
0: Well, I'm just going to back up just a minute there for you, Swami. I'm not sure the peer review process is designed or meant to detect fraud. I think we go into it with a bit of an honor system, but I'm not sure that it's meant to detect fraud. And the other point about p-hacking I think it's more like gaming the system. People know that if you have a positive finding, you have a significant p value, that publication bias is there. And so that's more likely to get you another publication on your CV and advance your career. So I think people are sort of gaming the system for their advancement and it's not as nefarious as fraud. And I think that p hacking should be detected and can be detected, but I'm not so sure that peer reviewers, unpaid peer reviewers should be set up to detect fraud. Any comments yeah. on that?
4: No, no, I think you're right. And, and maybe maybe I was pushing it a little bit too far on the p-hacking and fraud, but I agree with you. I don't think that unpaid peer reviewers should be hunting those things out. I don't think that's really their job. And when I say their job, Ken, I mean our job, because I do peer review and I kind of kid around with people. It's like, oh, how did I get into peer review? I emailed the editor and said, I want to do peer review. And then I got sent a couple of modules and Two weeks later, I was doing peer review on articles. So I think that we learn that process as we go, but am I really the best person to be hunting out these things? No. And and I'm not trained to do that. We really do need paid peer reviewers whose job is to really look at that data and say, something doesn't quite add up here. There's something going on. I need to get a little bit more information about this to really see whether it holds up.
0: All right. Well, back to your sixth point, and that was about the data and the methods that are not often openly shared. Most major journals require trials to be registered on sites like clinicaltrials.gov. This provides a priori detail of the methods that will be used and the outcomes that have been selected. There is a study though in 2013 showing that about half the time there was a difference between the primary outcome registered on a trial registry site and the final journal article. And then another study by Jones et al. in 2015 reported a discrepancy between the registered and published primary outcome, almost one-third of the time. So we need to be skeptical even if it's published and even if it's registered. Sharing of the raw data is another challenge. Most high-impact journals have a policy for data disclosure. However, the primary data set is rarely available and that journals rarely take action.
4: That first point that you made about going to clinicaltrials.gov and looking at the details of that study when it was registered is really important. And and this is something that you've taught me, and I've been doing this for the last couple of years. Every article I read, I see, was it registered there? What were the outcomes that were registered? How did things change? Clinicaltrials.gov is a really well-set-up site because you can actually look at the history of the study and see how things changed, when things changed, and those are important things too. But here's the problem, Ken, most people, myself included, don't really have the time to do this for every article we read. It's a lot of work. And, you know, in some ways I would expect the peer reviewers to do that, but maybe that's too much to ask of unpaid peer reviewers as well. And so we need a better system. We can't really expect every single physician who's reading an article to go back and look for the clinicaltrials.gov information and read that site too. Nobody would ever read articles if that's what was necessary in order to understand them. So we need to have a better process of getting this done. And really, it falls to me, in my mind, it falls in the lap of the journals to actually do that process and make sure that things are legitimately done, that they are registered on clinicaltrials.gov, and they didn't change their primary outcomes or secondary outcomes after data collection or when they wanted to. I think these are all really important concepts, but really hard for the individual physician to do.
0: Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I also agree that it probably shouldn't be at the level of the peer reviewer. If you submit your article to the editor and to a decision editor to get published in their journal, I think it's a simple administrative task that can be done at the journal level where they bring up uh, clinicaltrials.gov or whatever registry they were involved in and say, what was the primary outcome? What was the secondary outcomes? And then compare them. And if there's a mismatch, it's an automatic, send it back and say, please explain.
4: Ken, you know, down the line, we might need to get on one of our friends who's an editor for a journal and not really put their feet to the fire, but ask them about this process and and how they think this could be better done to make it more usable for the end user, to, to make it a little bit easier to get through these articles. I would be interested to see one of our friends kind of discussing this with us. So it's not just us complaining about these things, but actually trying to find out why maybe things are done certain ways, or we might even have friends who, as editors, they do this already. And that would be interesting to know too, because it would give people information about what resources are a little bit more reliable to use. So Ken, we've gone through those six points, which is all well and good, but I think we also need to talk about what we, and by we, I mean the community of medicine, can do to improve this process.
0: Well, there are a variety of things we could do to raise the bar, but I'm just going to highlight five Go figure. I'm going to highlight five suggestions, and you will be able to tell that some of them I mushed together so I could come up with that magic number of five. But the first thing is don't overinterpret one positive study and move away from this one and done mentality. Emphasize that null is not dull and demand replication before implementation of a new clinical practice. Second thing I think we can do is lobby to change academic promotion so it's not based so heavily on the publish or perish model and recognize other important aspects of academia. And the third item is pay peer reviewers from some of the money publishers make off the free work done by researchers who create the content for medical journals. The fourth thing is, I think we should change the ethics approval process, the IRB, so that permission to conduct research will only be granted on the promise that the raw data set is easily available to others to review, and failure to comply with this would result in public removal of ethics approval. And the fifth and final thing is, journals should make publications a priori. So someone submits their methods with their question and say, I want to answer this question and these are the methods I'm going to use. So we know that it's statistically sound and robust with regards to their methodology. They submit that with an important clinical question. And then the journal decides, yeah, hey, whatever you get, yeah, we agree to publish that after the peer review process, but we'll agree to publish that based upon that methodology and question asked not based on the post hoc results. In other words, once you've got all the results and you put it through the grinder and then you send it into the journal. I'd like the journals to accept papers and promise to publish them based a priori on the clinical question asked and the methodology used.
4: I love all five of those points, Ken, especially the last three of them. And I'm not saying to pay peer reviewers just because I am one and I'm not looking for retroactive pay. But again, like you said, you get quality when you pay for quality. So let's reward people for doing good quality peer review, that ethics process of granting it only if that data gets published. And I think, you know, even go a step further, a lot of research studies get grants. They get grant money to fund that research. A lot of that is derived from public funds. The public then should be able to see that data. And I don't mean that every individual is going to access the data, but the data should be accessible to everybody especially if we paid for the data to be collected in the first place. And then that last idea, what you're asking for is journals to say, the question is important, the methodology is sound, we're publishing this regardless of what comes out of it, because this is an important thing to add to the House of Medicine. It's important information regardless of the results. I think we often see the opposite. In fact, my guess is we almost always see the opposite in big journals, which is that it's about the results and not about how we got to the results, the quality of the methodology. And I think that you would see the quality of methodology spike. It would get much more robust if it was that way that you got approved for a journal, right? So the New England Journal is only going to accept a paper if the methodology is 100% bulletproof. And I think that's what we should expect as evidence-based practitioners.
0: Yeah, and I think that you would uh, see the number of publications with regards to, and I don't like to dichotomize into positive and negative findings. There are so many... Good research questions that have been asked that have a published result, which is no superiority. We accept the null. But that's an important question that was asked, and it was really, really good to publish the results of no significant difference. And so I really respect researchers and journals that do that.
4: Yeah, I think you would see a lot less data that gets hidden in the bottom drawer of a file cabinet and a lot more data that's out there that would help, again, to advise us as clinicians and more importantly patients on what is best. And that's really what all of this comes back to, right, Ken? All of this comes back to how do we provide the best care for the patient in front of us and without knowing all of the data that's out there? It's really hard to do that. It has to start and end with the patient. And so we're asking for all of these changes. We're asking for a better system of replication and, and, and getting this done so that we can provide better care to our patients and be better informed about what's best to take care of them. Ken, this is a great topic and we'll list all of the resources that you sent me in the show notes because it was really kind of a fun read, a topic that I didn't know very much about. And there's some really good short pieces on this idea of replication bias and the the issues around it. And we'll list those in the show notes for people to look at, but another great topic. And Ken, I think we definitely are going to want to get an editor friend on the show at some point, interview them and, and ask them some of these questions and, and get a little bit more insight into that journal process of how peer review works and, and how the editor system works. I think that'd be really interesting as well for all of us to know how the system works that churns these papers out and gets them to our doorstep or you know onto our computer for us to read. Again, I'm really looking forward to bridging into next month and, and taking on another one of these fantastic either stats topics or philosophical topics. I'm, I'm sure right after this, we're gonna sit down and figure out what we wanna dive into. And for all the listeners out there, until next month, remember to stay nerdy.
3: That's a wrap for October. That's a wrap, kids. You know, this is a bit of a long recording this month, but honestly, it's because the papers were kind of g- really good this we month.
2: We knew it was going to be a problem because when we were selecting the papers, you know, many months, it's a struggle to get to 24. And there's yeah, some we where often like, don't.
3: We just yeah. stop at 20. We don't want to waste your time with right. like total BS papers. Yeah. But this month, it was like, wow, it was a lot of really good stuff. In fact, we saved a couple uh, yeah, for, next for next month. month. That's the, what yeah. we ended up doing. That's so. the truth. So. Yeah. There's a
2: couple in the back pocket. If we if next month isn't as good as this month, if we have some regression to the mean in terms of paper quality and interest, we've got a couple in the back pocket they will make you know, it. And, and we, if you're an author and you weren't selected for this month, know that maybe that's the reason. Maybe
5: <laughs> that's good. You have to listen to
3: next month too to see if you were in that month. But uh, with the end of October, yeah, I'm surprised we didn't see any introduction.
2: Happy birthday! Happy birthday to both of us! Oh, Look
3: at birthday. us! Well, one year <laughs> older and less wise, yes. unfortunately. No. But yeah, I can't believe I forgot to mention that in the intro.
2: Hey, man, things are flying by. Time you know what, is flying could, it, by. Honestly,
3: I'm going blame COVID. <laughs> It could mess up everything. The
2: variant messed up everything. Ruined my birthday already. It's even often, the
3: enjoyment of our own birthdays has been messed up. I forgot about it. That's how bad it is right now.
2: But for those of you who are listening now in October, know that we are celebrating our birthdays with you. Yeah. Um, and we wish you nothing but the best. A safe birthday season, as Sanjay likes to believe, that yeah, there is br- such a thing as yeah. a birthday season. Literally, his daughter, you know, because he, he likes to train her to to, to to say all these impressive things. And you're like, what are the seasons? And she's like, summer, fall. <laughs> what's another name for her? Autumn, spring, winter, daddy birthday. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, what's sad of, I wish I did train her to do that, actually, because it'd be hilarious. But what's sad is, you know, my birthday month, as it actually is referred to, has now been attenuated because Ravi, our yeah. youngest son, it's is now sh- going to turn one. Yeah, So he he shares the birthday month with me and probably-
2: Well, he shares it with me too. And obviously it's not the same date for me because if it was the same date, his name would not have been Ruby. It would have been Mike Jr., that which was-, was our... That
3: was the bet. And we did shake on it. So <laughs> I'm very shake. glad that if he was- If we
2: had the same birthday, he was, he had
3: not, to... <laughs> he was not born on the 15th. <laughs> that worked out for all of us, well, honestly. I
2: think honestly, that's probably true. All right. Well, uh, enjoy, enjoy happy our birthdays, birthdays to everybody and... who are having one. And while a...
1: you're enjoying- Stay classy. Stay classy.